joined up, and I see we've got Chuck. Chuck. Hello. Hi, hi Peter. I, I, I see you on the way out the door. And uh, hi, Michael and uh, Nancy. You're there, too. And Nancy, I was looking at your uh, uh, your Twitter banner, and all I will say is I used to live in Avondale. Ah, I know the area very well. I used to work around the corner from it. That's code for being uh, formerly neighbors in Florida. So, uh, wow, we've got to, we've got a lot to cover. Uh, I apologize for being on the road, everybody, but um, I was in North Carolina. It was the 40th anniversary of the Beirut uh, bombings. I was there as a young SEAL officer attached to the Multinational Peacekeeping Force in uh, 1983, and uh, we had a a memorial uh, there. We had the Secretary of the Navy, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and for me, uh, the guest star was a man I look look up to and I have for most of my life. It was Colonel Tim Garrity, who was the commander of the Multinational Force, one of the uh, one of the best leaders, one of the most brilliant men I've ever had uh, had the chance to work for and uh, got to know him uh, a little better. Later, we were both working at an unnamed government agency that ends in a vowel. <laughs> but I'm glad to be back. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Chuck. Really great to have you back. You're exactly right. It's, uh, there's a lot to talk about. I can't, it's, it's day 610 of... Uh, this uh, three-day special military operation, just for those of you that are doing math, um, Vladimir Putin uh, is at about 20,300% of forecast in terms of getting this done, and that's assuming he gets it done today, which obviously is not going to be the case. I think that's an interesting statistic. And we've got a lot of maps. We've got some, uh, Chuck, I've seen the maps that you put up with the uh, Kupiaks this morning, and then followed by Bakhmut, and then uh, and then I saw the one you just put up just a couple uh, about an hour or so ago um, for the very interesting developments at uh, at Kherson. I know we've got those in the nest and uh, that that order um, that kind of reverse order starting with uh, Kherson and then going to Abdika. Um Where would you like to start? You, would you want to start with the, the latest one this evening, or do you want to uh, you want to start with the early ones? Yeah, we could uh, we could start with the the latest breaking uh, developments. I'm gonna have to get these up here. Let's see, I've got them uh, in little icons that I can't really tell what I'm looking at. So hang on, folks, while I bang through here. And while Chuck's pulling that up, we'll just direct you to the first tweet in the nest related to the Curson axis, and that is the map we're gonna be going over. If you do have an opportunity, please pull up that tweet and that map. Follow along. And if you have any questions, please feel free to come up. And then we've got a couple of speakers coming up. We're going to let Chuck go and uh, provide a breakdown of this, and then we'll uh, we'll open it up for questions. Yeah. So uh, this is the 2200 UTC, uh, 26 October map. And if you don't have it, uh, just imagine a meandering line going from the upper right to the lower left, and that will be the Dnipro River in the vicinity. Uh, of Kherson. What's been happening uh, for the last couple of days, uh, Ukraine has consolidated its lodgements to the east of Kherson, crossing the river. Uh, Their longest lasting uh, crossing point has been 
the M14 highway bridge across the uh, Dnipro there, the Anatovsky Bridge. M14 highway there goes into the suburb of Oleshki. And then uh, going, going uh, east there, uh, Ukraine also, uh, it was in, within the last seven days, they've expanded a, a crossing point uh, on the rail bridge, which is to the east. Uh, they, were, they were able to get across there. Um, well, actually, what I need to do is roll back a little bit. Uh, they staged a crossing uh, upriver uh, across at Kozachi Liri, which is farther, farther to the east. I am happy to remind uh, the Russians uh, how that went. Uh, naval special warfare elements crossed the river. Uh, they were able to get close to the town of Kozachi Liri. Uh, they were able to grab a Russian observation post, uh, get the radio, and transmit back to the company command locally in Kozachi Liri that they had captured a Ukrainian uh, reconnaissance element. So the local Russian commander piles into his jeeps and trucks and shows up with about 20 guys to take a look at the captured Ukrainians and winds up captured himself. Uh, the Ukrainians have been able to hold on to a position uh, north of the Kozachi Liri, which is separated by the Konka River. It's a very small tributary there of the Dnipro. So the crossing at the rail, rail crossing has happened, I guess, about uh, seven days ago. They've been able to push south uh, to a little town called Poima. Uh, they are pushing very close to the very important uh, intersection of the M14 and the M17. Uh, M14 highway goes south uh, from Kherson, then turns east, when next stop Melitopol. And the M17 highway at that juncture, it, of course, heads right to Crimea. Uh, going farther east from Kozachi Liri, uh, Ukraine has uh, crossed. Uh, the situation is pretty fluid right now. If you're looking at the map, you'll see that big area of blue stripes. I don't exactly know where the zero line is, but south of the little town of Krinky today, uh, Ukraine destroyed uh, two Russian main battle tanks and broke up uh Russian uh, probes and an assault there. And again, this contact took place just north of the M14 highway. What is very critical about that is uh, there are only two major roads reinforcing Russian uh, occupiers south of Kherson. If Ukraine manages to cut the M14 highway, uh, the only thing that's going to be supporting Russian occupation forces around Kherson is going to be the M-17. So because this is a sort of a developing situation, haven't really been able to hype it as much as I'd like, but depending on what happens tomorrow morning, this could be, uh, this could be highly significant. If they can cut the M-14 highway uh, west of Nova Harkova, uh, it'll be a big deal. Chuck, I know the last week's bullet points, you mentioned that the uh, 
that that one that appointment that that intersection with the M14 and the N17 was pretty critical. Could you uh, talk a little? You can you provide a little bit of insight about the uh, the Oleski Sands uh, Preserve area and are, are there any opportunity for the Russians to defend in that area or is that pretty much a, a no go in terms of uh, military operations? I missed my button there. Yeah, it's kind of a. Uh, uh... Uh, it is non-optimal uh, operational conditions for pretty much everybody. But what that what that will mean how, that will be favorable for the Ukrainians as they uh, west of the Oleski Sands uh, as they push south that that terrain feature which is doesn't offer very much cover it it'll be hard to cross it's uh you know almost desert like conditions uh that will that will sort of secure their their left flank uh, and their left flank would be of course if they are oriented you know to drive south that'll be on their their left um uh, the the interesting thing is that uh the, because of the, the whole terrain around here is not is not very good. Uh, you get off road, you're you're kind of in trouble. So the roads here, and that is the M17 and the M14, become more important than usual because they aren't just one ground line of communication. They're almost the only the only show in town. And. Uh, Again, the whole, you know, the whole purpose of activity around Kherson, a bit like Bakhmut, uh, but almost in the opposite way. And when we get to Bakhmut, we'll, we'll talk about that. Russia, Russia is really getting rope-a-doped here because Ukraine will press its its crossing activities and their, you know, and increase their uh, conspicuousness uh, in an attempt to get Russia to keep sending people into Kherson province. Uh, they, because once they are there, they basically can't do anything. There's, there's no place for them to maneuver, and uh, Russia cannot turn its back on any Ukrainian crossing activities of the Dnipro. There's too much at stake, and already they've cut it pretty fine. I mean, if you're standing at the M17 and M14 highway intersection, you can hear the sound of rifle fire. And if that is taken, it's going to be a very big deal. The other thing that even if that, that intersection is not taken, just cutting the M14 is going to be a big deal. And I've got a hunch that uh, if the contact is where it is placed on, on this map here, uh, the M14 highway is already pretty much interdicted, meaning that there are ground forces within rifle range of the of the highway, and rifle range, uh, you know, augmented by anti-tank guided missiles, and of course artillery fire from the north bank. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not good for the Russians, Michael. Uh, doesn't sound like that at all. Another thing. I wanted to ask you, and that is, you know, we, we hear so much about the Robotany axis and about the, the very heavy fortifications, and in some cases, uh, those tunnels that we've heard about. Do the Russians have any type of fortifications in this area that are, and, and if they do, how do they compare to what we, we've seen in some of the other areas where they've 
they've had offensive operations going since uh, June timeframe. Yeah, you know, their their ground defenses here are not as conspicuous, and I will admit, I, my my information is not as as good as I would like it to be. Um, I I and so I would default. Uh, I think that I won't be very far off the mark by saying uh, the terrain here is is likely very heavily mined. Um, if you are looking at the map and you zoom in, you can see there are a series of smaller secondary roads um, and the built-up areas. Uh, in the built-up areas, the Russians will certainly have uh, uh, built, you know, field expedient defenses. Um, for example, in the town of Radensk, which is south on the M17, uh, that is a that is an urban area or semi-urban area that will be very heavy, heavily fortified by the Russians. Normally, the Ukrainians will not be drawn into any, you know, three-dimensional urban combat. They're just, they're not going to do it. Uh, but Radensk is a place that uh, they're going to have to go around uh, or go through. And in that case, the Olechki Sands that's, uh, you know, what would normally be securing the Ukrainian left flank as they advance. It's going to be a little more difficult uh, for the Ukrainians. But if you are if you are looking there at that portion of the map, you can see the rail right of way goes uh, to the east of town. I would suspect that Ukraine will be pushing down that rather than the M17 highway there. But they're not that far south yet. Um, but again... I would expect this place to be just mined like crazy. Indeed. And one of the things I know that we've, we've seen ever since the Ukrainians took back the, the city of Kherson proper was that the Russian shelling that uh, was pretty constant uh, across the Dnipro. Um, are there any signs that that is uh, abating at all uh, as a result of these operations? Or is there any, any relief for the residents of Kherson? Well, we uh, the last time I put up a map uh, in this area, the Ukrainians had conducted or announced that they had uh, started evacuating uh, civilians uh, more than usual. There are still civilians in Kherson, and generally in war, uh, as as sad and counterintuitive as it is, the the most vulnerable persons tend to cling the, the hardest to their homes, uh, especially elderly people. Um, you know, they have nothing else in their life. They have, in their own minds, nowhere to go. Uh, so uh, the towns upriver from, uh, from Kherson, uh, they conducted uh, evacuations uh, this week, started uh, last weekend. Uh, and you can see, I uh, plotted the latest, uh, you know, reported artillery barrages, you know, in lieu of military targets, uh, you know, Russia will daily uh, shell villages. They almost shell everything that they can reach just for, uh, you know, shits and giggles. So uh, the evacuation uh, this week, uh, that indicated to me, and I think it was meant to indicate to the Russians that there's going to be more activity, uh, across the Dnipro. And, you know, one, again, 
every time you get information from Ukraine, public information, it is it is designed uh, to inform us, but also to influence what Russia is going to do. And a strong indication and warning to the local Russian commanders that things are going to get more serious here is Ukraine evacuating civilians from the North Bank. Uh, so I was pretty surprised uh, this evening. That's why I put up that uh, this Kherson map before we came up. Uh, I plotted the uh, contact south of Krinky, and uh, I was pretty surprised it was that that far south. If you look at the striped area there uh, to the west of Krinky and going south, you'll notice that that is uh, that Ukraine appears to have advanced across a forested area, which uh, they will often do. Uh, and again, remember, you know, Ukraine has an advantage in uh, maneuver warfare at night and also offensive operations at night and also in forested areas. And that having an advantage in those tactical situations, it, it always tells you that you've got reliably trained uh, small units. And we know that. Ukraine has led in all of these operations with some of their most capable and most experienced troops. And in this case, it's, it's naval special warfare uh, trained guys. And again, a lot of these people are freshly graduated uh, from from training in the UK with a special boat service, which uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff, they're absolutely the best. That's very heartening. And no, you're right. I'm pulling up the map that you have, and then I'm cross-referencing uh, like the one on Beef State. And yeah, there's some very thick forests that you definitely see that on the M14. And then it looks like south of there, it, there's still a, a band of forests, not quite as... as uh, it's heavy, but but it's still definitely there, um, just running to the west of the, the Nova Makichka. So, um, you know, perhaps that's a, that's a hot area that we're seeing. Um, I have one last question for you, Chuck, and then I was going to just ask Nancy and then uh, go to hands if you're okay. And, and that is, um, I was noticing on some of the earlier maps that you had, especially uh, as you go closer to Donetsk, that uh, your recordings, uh, a lot of airstrikes. I was just noting uh, this area. Didn't see quite as many airstrikes. It looks like the Russians are relying heavily upon artillery. Um, is are you seeing in this this area less and um, less any airstrikes at all, or um, do you, or is it pretty much just exclusively artillery from the Russians? Yeah, I I use the artillery strike icon here because the latest reports from the uh, Ukrainian general staff weren't weren't giving me a lot of uh, you know, reports for Russian airstrikes, uh, you know, and sometimes uh, the, the general staff uh, reports very specifically what was hit by artillery and what was hit by airstrikes. But uh, trying to get this up in a hurry and uh, just reporting on the, uh, the, the crinky operation, uh, they have been conducting airstrikes here uh, and in typical Russian fashion, uh, they seem to prioritize civilian targets for their airstrikes. Uh, so I would say that those three strike icons in Kherson, at least one of those was a, was a Russian airstrike. Uh, I think the majority of the others just 
today were were artillery. But that being said, it's uh, you know it's it's generally a mix, and the Russians are still flying uh, on a daily basis at least uh, ten aviation strike missions for every Ukrainian sortie, and that's just a function of uh, Russia's uh, you know incredible advantage in terms of airframes and air force and ordnance and everything else. But, uh, you know, they don't miss an opportunity to slam a civilian target. Oh, I, I hear you. All right, Chuck. So, uh, Nancy, I think we're going to do real quick since we've you've got a couple of hands. Uh, so I think we'll go for there. So just a uh, quick uh, quick note as far as hands go. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a couple. If you do want to speak, uh, have a question for Chuck, please put your hand up. If you are a speaker and you don't have a question, uh, we do have a, a full speaker panel right now, so please consider going ahead and just dropping down to a listener. If, if you don't have a question, I, I may have to go ahead and uh, uh, may have Nancy and I may have to go ahead and remove you. That said, uh, the order of hands we have is Aloysius, and then we've got Fletch. So Aloysius, um, thank you for coming up. Um, what's your question or comment for Chuck? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you. I um, I'm a regular listener, so thank you very much. This was uh, very detailed. I actually only have one administrative comment right now, and um, it's uh, it's been um, making me mad. But uh, a lot of users are reporting that we cannot see um, the the Maria report is not visible in the spaces list. It's not up there trending. It's not anywhere. You can scroll down from top to bottom, and it's not anywhere. So the only way to find it is if you're searching for it or if somebody uh, retweets the space. And I think that is uh, our reach is suffering because of that. And um, because I, I first found it because I saw it in the list of spaces. And I, if, if I was looking for it now, I would have never found it. And, uh, and I think, is there anything, uh, this is just for a co-host or anyone in the space, does anybody know? If anybody can email uh, uh, Twitter help, Twitter support, and uh, just mention Maria report, not showing in the trending spaces. It's trending every night. It's the biggest space on spaces. And um, yeah, uh, that that was my question. And I'm, I know Thanks. there's a full panel, so I'm just going to drop down. And uh, yeah, I think the reach is definitely suffering, and I think more people need to review. Uh, you know, we need to raise awareness. Well, th thanks very much for that. I definitely will do that. Encourage everybody to retweet, share the space. Uh, do you have a question for Chuck before you drop down? Um. <clears throat> If, if, well, I do. Uh, do do you by happen to know by any chance that a weird piece of news from the other day that uh, twenty two Ukrainian airplanes were downed uh, in five days? Because that sounds that does not sound right. Because those numbers are not right. They they only fly in pairs. I I know, and they they would. It doesn't sound right because if all of a sudden they had a better way of, um, I think they started using uh, like a helicopter as, a, as like as a relay node. And uh, and uh, they have like better way to intercept them. If they all of a sudden lost one plane, all of a sudden one plane more on average than they normally would, they would slow down their operations. I don't think they would continue flying. So it doesn't make sense that they lost 24 planes in um, uh, five uh, days. Plus, they don't really have that many airframes, uh, and and they don't fly in such big um, squadrons. I would definitely agree with that. That's uh, that is aspirational uh, 
uh, information from the Russians. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very glad you, you pointed it out and, uh, you know, smart listener, if there was that sort of, if, if those losses had occurred, you're right. You'd absolutely see a rapid dropping off of Ukrainian sortie numbers, why they tried to figure out why they suddenly got a spike in their losses. Uh, you know, and we'll always say this for, you know, for, for every bit of information. That's the Shoigu guy. Uh, I, I don't know what they're telling him. They're probably telling him everything is going great. He's silo. <laughs> He's a like command center in like some kind of bulletproof train. Yeah, and they and they're they're telling him they shot down twenty four airplanes in two days, uh, because that's what he needs to hear. But it's not happening. But I'm very, you know, I'm very glad you were you were able to look at that information. Say, look, it's it's anomalous. Uh, and what would I expect to see if that were true? What what sort of secondary second order effects would I expect to see? And you know, everyone who listens to the show, you know, I say this every show. You look, when you get told something in this war, whether it's by Ukraine or Russia or anyone else, ask who is telling me this and what do they want me to think? And that goes for whether that information comes from Washington, Moscow, Kiev. Look at that because, you know, there's not only just the fog of war. Uh, you know, we got to triangulate all the sort of information. And I was going to make this crack just a little earlier when Michael brought it up. Uh, you know, somewhere between the deep stake map, live view map, Institute for the Study of War, and me, somewhere between all four of those is the truth. And, you know, we're all a little, we all ingest the information and draw the lines slightly differently. And uh, I don't think anyone wants to be wrong. Everybody wants to be as right as they can. Place where you're walking through a field and a bullet snaps over your head. That's the zero line. And where exactly that is at any given time, it's, uh, you know, it's really hard to tell. And from our uh, regular... It's a, dynamic, uh, it's a very dynamic line, right? Sorry, sorry. How to just... tell... Go Disin... ahead. Continue on the misinformation. Uh, we have a, a kind of a usual rubric on how to tell... Uh, you know, uh, misinformation, disinformation, and uh, from from that rubric, one one way I, I typically one trick I typically go to is, uh, well, how how do you know a Russian politician is lying? How can you tell a Russian politician is lying? <laughs> I think I know, but go ahead and tell us. <laughs> Their mouth is moving. Uh, yeah, well, we've got some of our own politicians. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I, I, I got to drop to make room for everyone else, but. Uh, please, if everyone can uh, uh, email support and help uh, Twitter uh, about the space, why is it not showing up on trending? Why is it not showing up anywhere in uh, in the spaces list? It may be uh, showing up for you because you're following someone. But if, if you do like a burner account and do a test, is it showing up? You can just log in with the burner account and see if it's showing up or if somebody ask a friend, it's not going to show up. It's not showing up for me or many other users and our reach is suffering. So if you know how to fix that or are we de-boosted or something or something is happening that you know of, 
just please speak up or uh, help or uh, reach out to the co-host to let them know. Aloysius, the one thing I can say there too is, is this does happen occasionally and we are seeing a, a spate of it again here. And I'm, the one thing, that's one of the reasons actually why we do ask people to promote the space, retweet the space. If you, if we're having a situation like this too, you know, we'll, we'll reach out to support, but what we're, what we're hearing, the general feedback we're getting is that some people cannot see it and other people can, like there's no problem at all. And it, it doesn't seem to be, necessarily related to a new or a burner type account versus a regular one. We haven't been able to identify that pattern yet. Um, but if you, if you come on and normally see somebody who you don't see in the space, even you as a listener can send an invitation to them to listen. Um, so share and retweet or, you know, do a buddy check. And if your buddy's not there, you know, send them a DM saying, hey, come listen, I don't see you. Because any little bit of a trail of breadcrumbs we can provide at times like that helps a great deal. And, uh, and it means we're all looking out for each other. So, so while we're all knocking on Twitter's door, uh, we can use a buddy system and make sure that we're all uh, um, floating up a up on the tide and able to listen in too. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to drop down and uh, good luck. And, uh, thank you. Great. Thank you. So, uh, Chuck, I think you're, uh, you're uh, one of our favorite people uh, from Wales is here. And he has very airtight analysis. Unlike the uh, national uh, vegetable of Wales, he does not leak. Fletch. <laughs> Hi, Welcome. Fletch. How are you, bud? No stop out. Tinyang Chuck. Do you want me to talk in Welsh or English? You know, I'm oh, just you better talk in English for me, buddy. I, I like Welsh, but uh, it's uh, yeah. I'm like a hog yeah. looking at a wristwatch when you speak Welsh. Yeah, Fletch, on and, Brio Port, when I'm hosting, we have something called um, Mel Brooks Rules, and that is uh, in this movie, To Be or Not To Be, they sing Sweet Georgia Brown in Polish, and then they switch the the English for the sake of the audience. So we have that same rule. And that is, if you want to sing Sweet Georgia Brown in Welsh and then get to English, you can. Otherwise, please stick to English. Dobra. Right. Okay. Yeah. This area, Chuck, is interesting. Yeah, I'll remind the listeners, and I keep reminding. Um, Budanov um, has said um, that by Christmas, he expects to have some form of control over Crimea. Um, not necessarily being in Crimea, but some form of control over Crimea. Um, and as Chuck has just highlighted now, um, all that's going on now would need to occur in order to go towards what Budanov said. Now, a couple of things I'd like to add to this, Chuck. As we know, um, last week, Crinky um, was just starting. Um, now they've got sort of three different types of lodgements on the person area. Hang on. Um, oh, I'll mention what I've just had in a minute. Um, yeah, so um, a couple of things I'd want to come in. I'd like to ask a follow-up question in a minute, Chuck, as well. First of all, um, we, we talked about fixing troops in particular areas. Um, now, over the last seven days, Russian sources have been saying that Ukraine 
is continually landing reinforcements. Um, and that's a good sign, you know, because obviously they need to reinforce anyway. Um, and, and so that, that's an indicator, one of the indicators to me, um, that's the continuing to land reinforcements. Some other open source stuff um, that Ukraine has four marine brigades in reserve for this particular area and, and just, you know, connect with that sort of scenario. So the first question I'd like to ask, Chuck, as you're aware, um, the 7th um, Air, Air Assault Division, not brigade, but division, was moved from Kherson up to Saparisha area, primarily around the Rabutni and, and the Bove area. Now, in your opinion, do you perceive that Rabotny and Verbove could be fixing troops in that area so they don't return to Kherson? That's the first question, Chuck. I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. Uh, you, yeah, Fletch, you know when you hear that tremendous burst of silence from me that I, I've started talking to myself without pushing the, uh, the mic button. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I see that all of the effort in, in other places, uh, for example, you know, Robotny Verbove, as that is in, as that has been increasingly successful and albeit, as we both know, a very long, tough fight uh, with incremental gains, but uh, a great reference, folks. If you don't know, uh, the deep state map uh, lists enemy orders of battle, and you can see the concentration of Russian forces uh, up around Verbove, uh, Robotne, which is, you know, way, way uh, away from Kherson. The Russians are already to the point in this war that they have to rob Peter to pay Paul to reinforce any place on the, on the line of contact all the way from Kupiansk to Kherson. That is, that's what they have to do. And it's looking Fletch increasingly to me uh, that the Russian forces in Kherson Oblast are, are man, they're, they're not stretched to breaking point yet but they're getting pretty thin on the ground. And we talked about this just a minute ago, Fletch, and now I want to get your opinion on this. The operations south of Krinky and uh, uh, Psy Style 1 also broke this information first. want to give a shout-out to him. Uh, that contact is, uh, you know, just north of the M14 highway. And I want you wonder if you would discourse a little bit about if Ukraine is to interdict that highway, the M14, uh, east of town, and they're probably to the point right now where, you know, they can make things very difficult for someone driving down the M14 highway, that's going to have a really tough effect on uh, Russian forces trying to hold on to Oleshki, which is the suburb uh South of south of Harrison, actually south and east, and uh, Kozachi Larry and uh, Poima and all of those places as well. What what would you do now? I mean, would you go to cut the M14 as a Ukrainian commander, 
Uh, would you push south out of Poima? Uh, what do you think is more important right now, grabbing the intersection or cutting the highway farther to the east? Yeah, yeah, I've looked at that as well. Um, now, because they're bringing reinforcements into the Crinkney area, um, that, that, that is interesting for me because um, I'm wondering, right, are they, they have three, and, and technically, each lodgement they have, they have some around the Lechki, they have some around Kozozi, the Lazuri, some around Crinky, um, and there's little bits scattered in between where they've been making landings, um, and they may be looking for another spot to come in, um, because as we know, that the, the Curzon Edge, they're not far from Nova Kokoka as well, um, and if they could secure Nova Kokoka, um, that, that's another thought I've been thinking about. You know, would it be worth securing that? But I'm going to revert back to Budanov, yeah? Um, and I think you mentioned it when you first started, Chuck. Redensk is a key, key point. Because what I've seen, Russians have their main reserve really around the Redensk area. Um, certainly, you know, they have strength there. Uh, and I picked up some more information today that they've moved more artillery to this area as well, um, which was an interesting point because uh, Ukraine had pushed quite a lot of their artillery back. Um, so I'm going more, uh, and I think you, you, you've all already mentioned this. We, we, we mentioned this three or four months ago. It's the junction, Chuck. Yeah, I, I think that's the key point. But they do need to um, to, to address Redensk. And I think with all the three lodgements they have now, and Crinky, I mean, they're mainly in the north and attacking the south. And the artillery's been hitting, Russian artillery hitting the north, Ukraine artillery hitting the south. So that just shows you the disbursement of, of the forces there. But I'm perceiving, um, if, if Budanov um, and his foresight is correct, um, that, that somewhere along the line, Redensk and the junction is going to be the key factor. Um, and, and if they can secure that, um, and I think some special forces as well could actually take that junction if they had enough forces to back it up with. I mean, is that where you're sort of seeing things as well? Yeah, definitely. And uh, if you send a SEAL team in, folks, or a couple of SEAL platoons, we can take anything. And I'm, I, I'm almost not exaggerating. We can seize it, but we cannot hold it very long. So you've got to, you've got to balance that. Uh, you can get your naval special warfare units there, and uh, they can grab a key junction, bridge, airport. Well, airports are actually a little out of our lane. That's, that's more of a ranger operation. But uh, if you can get the uh, the reinforcements there and Fletch you mentioned three brigades of naval infantry that is a significant force and uh, you know that is the that is the uh, sort of exactly the force posture you need to make an advance stick so I, I I'm still not sure that Ukraine has got really the intention to get, uh, you know, to really make their their crossing of the Dnipro yet. And just knowing how they, they, they so meticulously prepare 
everything. So I, you know, I, I'm just pushing the schedule, you know, back, uh, you know, to the right a little bit, but I take, I take every word that general Budinoff says, I take that to the bank. So, uh, you know, I, I also think he's putting the Russians on notice that Hersano blast is going to be, uh, it is going to be the scene of, of some major conflicts. I mean, that's the, 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 the perfect of this is to strike where they don't expect it. Uh, and this is what I'm seeing about fixing troops. I mean, they're fixing them in Rubitling, um, and in theory, they're fixing them in Kursan as well, you know, so that there's both areas. But a couple of things I'd like to add to this, and then, then you know, I, I don't know if you want to opine on it. Um, but the Ukrainians have been having some heavy training, and they just finished some, on the German um, bridge layers, um, the M3s. Uh, which are like well, a bit motor like motorized segments, and you know we've seen them in a smaller scale around here, uh, but the German M3 type ones, and I know the Netherlands had delivered some in some previous aid packages, but they've just completed their training on these particular types, and these are for heavy equipment. Yeah, so that's one thing that's leading to the Budenov scenario, um, and and another thing as well. I don't know if you recall last week, Chuck, I mentioned that. Ukraine uh, can produce and procure 20,000 drones per month. And I got a little bit of pushback from that, from Helen. Well, today, or well, yesterday, uh, the general staff confirmed that they are now producing tens of thousands on a monthly basis um, of drones of all types, um, you know, and a lot of the FPV ones as well. And we haven't seen the swarm element come in, <clears throat> but I was reading a particular article of how that is expected to show itself on, on the battlefield at particular key areas where possible breakthroughs could occur. So I'm just asking your opinion on the availability of having tens of thousands of drones available now, because I know they're producing at least a thousand per day. And the fact that they've completed their um, river crossing on the heavy equipment moving stuff, um, whether or not that Budanov scenario um, is a little bit closer than we perhaps think. Yeah, I, I wasn't one of the guys pushing back uh, very hard on you uh, at that time. I'm just getting on the right side of history, folks. Um, we Just in 600 days... We've seen first-person drones enter the battle space as an improvised stopgap sort of uh, democratization of close air support. In the United States, it would have taken a decade to advance the technology through all of the steps necessary, uh, put it through all kinds of rigorous training, and it might have taken two decades to get that into the fighting doctrine. Ukraine has changed the way that people are going, that infantry combat is going to be fought from here on out. Uh, and we're, we're still seeing essentially one of kind of drones. And, and drones is, Fletch, as you know, it's a, it, it's a big term in this war. It's, it's everything from Puma 
uh, silent electronic ele- electric powered uh, you know medium endurance reconnaissance drones. It's you know uh, it it it's all sorts of capabilities, uh, Barakhtars, just all sorts of different things. But right down to the sort of hob, what used to be a hobbyist drone, now it's got a cluster bomblet clutched in, underneath it, and you can precision strike that on individual Russian vehicles. And the swarm that Fletch is talking about, and I absolutely agree with you, Fletch, it is going to be this, it will be a tactic that will break upon the Russians, and there is going to be no defense for it. And what will happen is Russian electronic warfare stations at a, at a, at a certain point on the, on the zero line, they will be either taken out or taken offline. And what's going to happen, and, and maybe we're looking at the place that this will happen, Russian troops defending, uh, let's say, Radensk. In the middle of the night, on a dark and stormy night, they're going to hear this weird howling buzzing noise. And it's going to be a sound that almost no one on earth has heard. And it's going to be the screech of the motors of three to five hundred of these drones flying in and swarming everything. No one has ever seen that attack. It's, it's not been pulled off militarily. It's been done in the desert. It's been done on testing ranges. But the Ukrainians, and this is a prediction, Fletch, as you, as you set up so nicely, they're going to be the first people to do this on the battlefield. And there, is no, there isn't going to be a defense for it. And this is kind of comical. But you have more chance of defending yourself with a tennis racket than anything else. And Fletch, I think that's going to happen, and it might be in Hersan Oblast. Yeah, I agree. And just just finally, Chuck, um, Zelensky in his speech today said that he can now see victory much more clearer, <laughs> which is, is another message I'm picking up on, um, and the capabilities that they have coming online. Um, and I, I noticed today, and, and just adding on to just what you've said, um, that they've now got heavy drones that can take 15 to 30 kilograms bomber drones, you know, so they would come in handy, wouldn't they, Chuck, to attack a front if they wanted to make a breakthrough? It's just like an aeroplane, isn't it? A bomber drone carrying that much of weight. Yeah, and what, you know, what what is so amazing to me is Ukraine is not going to have air parity. That's at least 24 months out. And even then, it's not going to be on a, you know, it's not going to be at the national level. They can have localized air parity, maybe even air dominance. But in lieu of, of an air force that they have improvised uh, aerial means of attack. And, you know, what was their desperate improvisation has now become a pillar of modern warfare. Uh, You know, a rifle squad going forward for the rest of time, uh, unless you've got uh, your own organic 
drone capability, both for reconnaissance, situational awareness, and uh, precision attack, you know, if you are the guys with the drones, you are always going to beat the guys without them. Oh. No, indeed, and you're, you're right. You know, it's so fascinating, the, the, the number, the scale, the type of drones that we have out there, you know, that are being considered almost like a munition. We went from those million-dollar Bayrak cars to now, you know, they're 3D printing uh, special pieces of plastic that they could uh, take and then they could use for munitions that they'll fill up with explosive and, and small bits of metal. And uh, those things are, are coming into the, uh, to the field. It's just absolutely uh, it's incredible the innovation that's happening right now. You know, necessity is definitely the mother of invention, and we're definitely seeing that, aren't we, You know, I was I was just looking at the at the deep state map, and uh, you know, Fletch, looking at the uh, the Russian order of battle here in Kherson Oblast, and I'm seeing some really not capable units. I'm looking at uh, bars units. That is kind of this amalgam of Russian National Guard and uh, deep reservists uh, in these bars units. The average age of a combatant is 42 years old. So if that is your average age, you probably got geezers like me in the ranks. Uh, I'm looking at some storm units as well. These also, despite their cool name, they are not very capable offensively or defensively. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said I didn't think the Russians were yet stretched to breaking point in Hersano Blast, but uh, looking a little closer at the order battle, Fletch, they don't look all that strong either. Exactly. Uh, and that's how I see um the Zaporizhia front as a fixing. Because remember, we spoke about four or five months ago when the when the counteroffensive started, and we were a bit bewildered why they were met going to go for one of the most strongest defended um, points in the uh, in the area. And of course, it threatens Militopol and Antok Mac and Berdyansk, this particular area. Uh, so in a way, it was an area they would choose. Uh, but also as well, it's drawn all the quality troops from Kherson up to that particular area. And I see that now as, as a dual way of it's fixing troops there so they don't go to Kherson. Because if they move them from there, that will aid that particular front. So they're in the Cats 22. And you're right, uh, that the troops that they, they replaced the 7th Division, uh, and the division is, is, is a big big amount of troops, air assaults, they were the quality. They moved some from uh, Crimea, which was the mobilized, and then they substitute with the mobilized and the various reserves. Um, so as you're right in saying, there is a weakness there, Chuck. Um, and also as well, on the drone side, everyone's heard the birds of Magyar. Well, he's now in her song, Chuck. So, you know, signals and signs, it, it's all sort of, it's either hell of a good deception or it it could be the signs of something to come. Yeah, I, uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, there's a significant Ukrainian force on the North Bank. Um, the blow is going to fall and uh, 
you know, we've also been saying that the, every point of contact on the map from, from Kupiansk to Kherson, everywhere that General Zeluzhny has chosen to, to uh, you know, to prosecute attacks, there is minimal uh, and more often zero ground line of communication commonality between any of these locations. And what that means is each place where Russia is fighting Ukraine, they have to completely uh, reduplicate ground lines of communication. There's no commonality. There's no Route 66 that allows them to supply every one of these, these points of contact. And they were specifically chosen by Ukraine. And th there's another thing uh, to remember. This campaign, right? So a campaign is a series of battles that are pointed at an objective. So a war can have many campaigns in it. It can have hundreds of battles and, you know, 10 or 15 campaigns. This plan was worked on by the best military minds in Ukraine, the best military minds in NATO. And this, this plan, this campaign, it was red teamed and war gamed and played again and again and again. And what a red team is, is you've got your plan and you get on one side of the map table and you play your game and you pick the best opponents that you have. You pick the guys that, no Russian military doctrine, forward and backwards, but they're also innovative. Uh, you want to play somebody who is smarter than you. So you work out your kinks in the, in the planning stage. Uh, and everything that, you know, I'm not congratulating us, Fletch, but we're talking about places now that, you know, we talked about four months ago. Uh, you know, because the, map, the maps don't change. And there's just solid military, uh, you know, the facts are facts. And the facts on the ground will suggest courses of action. They will, and sometimes they mandate courses of action. Uh, and luckily for Ukraine, we, we see Russian commanders that are showing zero imagination. They, they don't seem to know their own military doctrine which in many cases, you know, Fletch, it, it, you know, I remember from the old days, it was pretty sound, right? There were, you know, nobody wanted to mix it up with the bear, but they're, they, they seem to have uh, abandoned, uh, you know, their own solid principles and uh, their own resources are getting stretched, you know, there are lots of commodities on a battlefield, right? There's ammunition, there's food, there's food, there's fuel, clothing, everything it takes to wage a war. And then there is the manpower. And it, it itself ha has gradations, right? And at the top of that manpower, I don't even want to say that at the top, but you've got special operations forces. Then you've got elite units, naval infantry, Marines, uh, airborne forces, air assault, mechanized infantry, and they are scraping lower and lower, Fletch, aren't they, on the manpower scale, and moving less and less qualified people into more and more critical situations. And that never 
works out. Uh, let's, let's hope that we continue a, a trading there. Um, Chuck, I, I hate to do this to you. It's been a great conversation with Fletch, but uh, just to let you know, we've got the five eager hands, and then I've also got some instant messages, uh, direct messages from some other people, some asking some questions. So, Fletch, appreciate your uh, question. We definitely want to just go to a couple more hands here. Uh, Tucker, you've been very patiently waiting for Chuck. So, Chuck, hope you're okay taking a question from uh, Tucker. Oh, ab after absolutely. That. Yep. Absolutely. So after, after that, we'll go to Tucker, to G-Man. Cornelius, Lexicon, uh, Lexicon, and then maybe we'll go to Ann Beefka, doing my best Alan impersonation here. So go ahead, sucker. Coming through okay? Clear? Got Alan, you, bud. Brother. All right. Um, and this, this will be quick, uh, Chuck. I just wanted to know if you had any information on Senator Tommy Tuberville out of Alabama, if there's any movement on our military appointments in the U.S., and then uh, I'll drop down the list. You know, I I, I haven't. And uh, well, you know, on bullet points, the the third rail for me, the kryptonite for me, is U.S. politics. Uh, but I will say, I I'm I'm not sure I fully understand what uh, Senator Tuberville thinks he is doing for his nation. And I'll just leave it at that. Thanks, Chuck. Absolutely. I wish I didn't have to answer that question, but thank you for asking the tough one. God bless you. Yeah, it, it's it's embarrassing to be an American today. But sometimes it is. G-Man, go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, Chuck. How are you doing, sir? I'm, I'm good, brother. Good to, you know, you are the G-Man. You're the guy that never sleeps, but good to see you. Wow. Yeah, sometimes it just goes off, you know, but it's just, you know, and the truth is I, I stand at, a, at one of those uh, board regeneration things, but I shouldn't have said that because I'm going to have to the old now. Now we know. Um, yeah, right. So what? Um, I, I need you just to repeat what you said about uh, Kohashi Larry. Um because somebody um, asked me a question about it on DM, and I, <laughs> I, need, a, I need a refresher. Yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's see. We were, uh, we were talking about uh, so Kozashi Larry. Uh, Ukraine actually holds the terrain north of it, across the uh, Konka River. Uh, so it's kind of a low marshy area there. Uh, when you're fighting in the swamps or any tough terrain, whoever gets there first will have the advantage. So whether you get, it's, it's easier to see, you know, you get to the top of the hill, you can see that, you know, that's going to make it easier for you to defend. Uh, it's sort of less, less apparent uh, if you're in, in the swamp, but uh, having done some swamp in my day, if you get there first, the bad guys got to come to you and it's impossible them to come to you silently they've got to wade through whatever muck is out there they're going to make noise in the reeds etc so i think when we move to the uh east of kozachi liri uh ukraine i guess this was about a week ago they they staged cross crossings into krinky and uh they've they've pushed south of there and uh, there actually, there was a, a fairly decent-sized engagement uh, north of the M14 highway, and again, that's south of Krinky. 
Uh, Russia lost, this is Ukrainian reporting, two main battle tanks and a Russian tactical unit got chewed up there in the engagement. Uh, and again, looking, there is a band of forests that uh, west of Krinky goes south, and there is a bend in the M14 highway, which in hindsight uh, looks like the road engineers decided they didn't want to go through the forest. They wanted to skirt it into the, the you know, the sandy, sandier terrain, less, less vegetation south of there. But uh, going to register this as possibly a significant uh, uh, action, especially tomorrow morning, uh, if it looks like Ukraine has poured more forces into that location, uh, and whether or not they just just hit the Russians and are going to pull back or hang on to the terrain they've got. So that wraps that up, I think. Great. Thanks, G-Man. Go ahead to Gavin. I know we've had uh, some hands been waiting very patiently. So just a reminder order, we've got Jeff followed by Cornelius, followed by Lexicon. Jeff, go ahead, please. I'll try to keep this brief, but something, a couple of things snap sharply into focus looking at your map, Chuck. Uh, by the way, thank you for being here. Um, oh, my pleasure. Uh, the Oleski Sands area, is, we've determined, is pretty much inaccessible to artillery. Which means that's going to that uh, uh, they're not going to Russia probably does not have likely does not have any artillery there, and uh, at this point of the game, uh, they're probably if the effective range of their 152 millimeter uh, tubes is probably about 17 kilometers. Uh, I note these things. Given that, I note that the distance between uh, the current um, lodgement uh, near the Antonovsky Bridge and the rail crossing uh, and where they're currently fighting at Krinky is uh, somewhere about 21 kilometers, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And um, I note that uh, that if they push a little bit further south from Poima and um, put some threat on to Radensk, is that the artillery that the Ru that Russians have brought up is probably going to pull back. And it strikes me that this creates a fairly substantial window uh, directly across Kazakulahari, which is out of range of most of the effective tube Russian artillery. Just wanted to point that out and see what your reaction was to it. No, good spot, spot on observations. Uh, you know, the other thing I, I, I'm seeing, and again, this is this is hypothesis, but I keep seeing it. There seems to be some breakdown in uh, or non-optimal functioning in in Russia, Russia's ability to call in, you know, calls for fire, meaning a forward observer identifying a Ukrainian target and calling in artillery accurately on that Ukrainian target. And I, I, I've seen it principally, uh, first saw it in Robotny and Verbove that, uh, you know, that, I, and I, I noticed it, especially I've sort of what first tripped me to it was Russia moving uh, self-propelled artillery really close to the zero line. And that just didn't make any sense at all. Uh, you know, you've got, You've got self-propelled artillery 
uh, and you want to move that around basically in the in the rear. And you want to move that around because on a modern battlefield, you're you're not going to get off more than five or ten shots from one location before counter battery fire starts hitting you. But we've seen that big uh, drop off in in Russian counter battery capability. The Russians themselves, uh, the troops are complaining bitterly about it. That was the result of this summer, Ukraine concentrating specifically on uh, Russian Zoo Park uh, counter-battery radars, which uh, were, are so big and put out so much wattage that I've, I've had Ukrainian combatants tell me that even your compass doesn't work in the vicinity of, of one of those things. But being that big and that conspicuous, they started to get picked off. But your comments around, uh, you know, what's going on around Kherson, there, you're you're absolutely right on. And in in civilian terms, if you've got an artillery tube, and it's 17 kilometers away from the bad guys it's supposed to be shooting at, you know, so uh, 10 kilometers is six miles. Uh, you're, you're an artilleryman, you are really counting on your forward observers to give you the, you know, in the Navy, we call it the target dope, right? The, give you the, 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 uh, the eight digit grid coordinates on the, the place you want to hit. And I just see, I just keep seeing, you know, that part of the, of the fire control loop, it's just getting worse and worse for the Russians. Uh, so that's something I keep an eye on, but your observations, uh, I, I agree with them completely. Yeah. It strikes me that what we've got is a situation where the effective envelope of, uh, Russian artillery coverage is being pushed back sharply because even though they are pushing their artillery forward because of loss of accuracy and things of a similar nature that we've seen, uh, there's still that envelope is still going to have to be pushed back significantly from the zero line. So it, it suggests to me that we are creating a bubble, uh, probably between 30 and 40 kilometers across, uh, the center of which will have pretty much no coverage from uh, uh, precision uh, ground based uh, munitions. You know, they, they'll still have, you know, they can still probably throw grads and things like that. But the, my understanding that the, the, the MLRS is there, the Russians have, their ground-based uh, rocket launchers haven't been as effective in terms of their impact on Ukrainians as other forms of artillery and, and air attack. So they may have, and, and, and the thing is their smaller grads don't even have the range. They don't even have the range of the 152 millimeter. Um, so I'm seeing an, an opening in Russian artillery coverage, which I think bears keeping careful track of for future developments. Yeah. And, you know, the Russians went in big for the multiple launch rocket systems. Yeah. The Katusha being the thing for World War II. I've had a lot of them shot at me and I'm still here. I mean, it's impressive when they rip off 20 rockets at you. Uh, but the majority of those are, have no sort of guidance at all. And they really are an area weapon. Uh, and if you are adequately dispersed and have reasonable cover, um, 
you know, look, like I said, I'm still here. Uh, and, and that, that's always sort of struck me that they, you know, they, they, they have a large proportion of their artillery is still those kinds of weapons. And you can rip off a whole truckload of those things and it wouldn't do uh, as good. Of course, the, you know, the cost is, is not even proportionate, but one Excalibur, one fifty-five millimeter round goes exactly where you want it to go. So, you know, we're, I think we might, you know, we might be seeing, you know, in this war, people are saying the main battle tank is dead. That's that, of course, isn't true. But we may we may be looking at honestly the unguided uh, 152 millimeter rocket. That that is a weapon system that that might actually be seeing the end of its service life. Uh, but again, I think one of the things that's really going wrong for the Russians is their their you know their forward observers. They don't seem to be getting uh, their their calls for fire straight. Um, and, but again, that's, that's an observation and I'm a long way from the zero line. Thanks very much, Chuck. We've got a, a couple more hands and then I've got a question from a listener. So we'll go off and have been very patient. Cordelius, a uh, question for yeah. Chuck. Go ahead. Hi, Chuck. Um, sound check. Yeah, man, we got you. Good. Thanks for coming up. Good stuff. Hey, th thanks for being here this evening. Um, so you got me started on a mental loop uh, about two, 20 minutes ago when you started talking about drones, uh, swarms of 500 drones. Nobody's seen that before. And I realized that maybe nobody's seen it before, but people have foreseen this kind of thing um, for, well, it, it, early science fiction, things like that. Um, so that isn't entirely unanticipated, but you're right. Nobody's done it, so they're doing it. Every once in a while, I mean, on a historical basis, you have a massive warfare technology change. You've got uh, aging court and the advent of arrows, which beat heavy armor on horses and infantry. Uh, you've got um, gunpowder, uh, the advent of gunpowder. You've got nuclear and these things are huge. Now, you know about the OODA loop and what is it? Uh, observe, orient, uh, decide and act. On the war, on the battlefield, OODA is your cycle. You're always working that the person who can get in the OODA faster than the other guy wins. So magnify that OODA loop way bigger and make it the technology loop. And things are starting to really snowball along here in this modern era. We've got your drone swarm, uh, 500 drones uh, swarm. You've got AI about to hit the scene or already is hitting the scene. Who really is, is ever going to know? Um, one thing I was worried about, not worried about, wondering about, an autocratic country would have the ability to direct development, but a democratic society is slow and bureaucratically ponderous. Do you think Russia's got an advantage or do you, th do you think Ukraine and the States can get inside that technology loop and leverage the technology faster than Russia can deal with it? Wow, that is a, that is a great, great question. You know, here, here, here's what I think uh you know as a as an unapologetic uh 
capitalist in terms of technological development, I think that a, 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 an open economic society will always be in a position to reward uh, technological advancement. You know, that being said, earlier in the show, I mean, I really meant it, that it would have taken the U.S. military 20 years to get the first person uh, drone into its arsenal and doctrine. And, uh, you know, I've done some work for DARPA in my day. Uh, there is a leading ed edge of technology. Then there is the bleeding edge of technology. And there's also this vicious thing that I used to call technological inertia. And in many cases, the best idea uh, might not always win if it's not Raytheon's idea or TRW's idea. You know, you'll actually get, uh, you know, people playing goalie, uh, corporations playing goalie. You know, that being said, and I, I you know, I, I, your point is well taken that, a, that an autocratic society should be able to develop you know, point their finger at a technology and say, we want this and develop it. But I think one of the great things that the, the ever provident Lord has introduced into this war is that Russia is so unfathomably corrupt that uh, unless it puts a dime in Shoigu's pocket or he can kick it up to Putin or any of the other hundreds of oligarchs, uh, corrupt generals and admirals, and I think that's going to retard Russian uh, technological development. But I, I don't think there's been a country in warfare, uh, you know, all, all, almost in, you know, you, you mentioned Agincourt. It almost goes back that far that a country could take advantage of a technological, uh, uh, I don't want to uh, uh, you know, a fortuitous circumstance and so quickly put it into practice on the battlefield. And the first person, you know, first person drones, you know, 300 days ago, they started coming out as a targeting uh, device. So effective that the Ukrainians are cutting up the, uh, the, you know, the 155 millimeter cluster munitions we give them that have like 72 bomblets in them. They cut those up. And they take the bomblets out because they can make sure that those bomblets go exactly on target, which a 155 millimeter shell bursting over the battlefield, it'll rain those things down. But again, sort of an area weapon. And again, sort of like the Katusha rocket. So I, I, I do think and Fletch mentioned it earlier, and I bet you're there with me that uh, the next, the next breaking technology that is going to clobber Russia, they got caught blindsided by the unmanned surface vessels. They've, they've been blindsided by, uh, by the quick, rapid prototyping of basically hobby drones, turning them into weapons. But they are also going to get clobbered by this drone swarm. And the technology is there in bigger weapon systems. The brimstone missiles that are basically like a hellfire on steroids made by the UK, they can communicate with each other. You can launch four of them at a target and those missiles can talk to each other and discriminate targets. One can go 
One can pull up and circle the target. One can hit. They can all diverge, so they all hit at once. And, uh, you know, those, of course, you're paying premium dollar for those things. But you put that sort of capability into your, uh, you know, your Mavic drone. And I, I'm not kidding. We'll, we'll see this. I, and I think probably before Christmas, we're going to see a multi-hundred drone strike on, uh, on some Russian targets. Well, I, I, I thank you for that. Also, yeah. you know, Chuck, I think the one thing that we also miss is the fact that we in the West have the ability to think critically. And uh, the, that is so important in innovation, and not just there, but also in the ability to think through how do you implement that technology. I think there's a lot of thought about technological advance, but not necessarily the application of it. And I think that's where we in the West are so good. And that's where I give the Ukrainians full marks. If they can take technology, maybe it's off the shelf, maybe it's something that's been around for quite a while, but they can turn around and they can apply it in a way because they're, they're able to think critically, whereas on the Russian side, they follow orders. They follow orders, they follow orders, right? Well, there, there's one thing that, I, and I'll, I'll, get, I'll get off here in a second, Just, there's one thing that Ukraine has been so good at. Somebody gets a good idea and they say, go ahead and prove it on the battlefield. And when it works, you know, it's funded and it's produced. Yeah, and just just to close that that my question out um, with an observation that uh, don't don't forget, um, yeah, Russia doesn't have the capabilities to build those drones, but all of those Mavics, they all come from one place that's a real wild card, and it's an autocratic wild card that is able to make things fast, and uh, we should be pretty careful. Anyway. That's, that's back I, to you. Thank you. I, I agree with you completely. And then I'll also uh, remind everybody, you know, there is the kinetic side of the battlefield, and that's the sound and the noise and the light and the thunder. And there is the other side, and that is electronic warfare. And that is making sure the other guy's drones don't work. That is all the, all the behind-the-scenes magic that that happens and and making sure that your side has electronic warfare dominance and like any dominance in warfare you don't have to be strong everywhere you got to be strong at the point of attack and that dominance you know you can shift it where you're dominant where you're not you show a capability to the enemy you beat him over the head with it and it's twice bitten once shy and you try to make him commit resources uh, to counter your threat, but you know you want to make sure he expends those resources in the places you are not. So I would I would expect right now a couple places on the battlefield where the electronic warfare battle is raging, and that is or on the Orhiv salient, but here especially in a place like Hersant, where we don't know exactly what's going to happen uh, tactically. But that that has been just the most fascinating, uh, one of the most fascinating parts of this. And I'll talk just a little bit out of school. And I want to commend our listeners. Some of them listening tonight might know who they are. We have the the Berea Report itself and its listeners have come up with good ideas to apply into this battle space, and they have gone into development 
conceived by listeners, put into development and sent to the battle space. And I won't go any farther than that, but that is really impressive. And those are the kind of listeners and that's the kind of community that we have here. So good ideas don't get wasted in this spot. And, you know, when you turn off, turn off the show tonight, think about that. And that's all done to start with direct messages, people contacting other people saying, Hey, I've got this expertise. I do this. I, I see it. I see a possible application here and it going like a rocket conceived, developed and put into the hands of the people who need it. So good on you guys, not on me. That is truly remarkable. All right. So what we want to do, I know we've got a couple more hands here, but we're going to go to Lexicon. Then I have a, an a audience question I'm going to ask, and then we'll go to Andika, so Randy and Oyvind. After Andika, we'll, we'll definitely go to hands, so just be patient. But Lexicon, please go ahead. Well, I think I wanted to get into uh, Avdivka. I think other people might be strictly on uh, Kherson. Um, I just... I just could like I'll come back later. Just say at this point, you can really see the fluidity and the dynamic and quality of this war. I guess any war would be, but I mean, we really see, you know, people talking about how Ukraine moved troops to reinforce Avdivka. At the same time, Ukraine's pouring in these or moving in anyway troops to this area. Russia has moved troops down to or has to keep. Yes, to move some, possibly, maybe you could say, if they're moving any to this Kherson area, and you're sort of uh, trying to follow this ourselves. We really, I really missed it Tuesday night, but looking at different commentators saying, well, each country is moving troops this way and that way, and trying to figure out which place is more of a pull pulling troops uh, which way, and. Um, uh, I mean, we'll talk about it, but uh, so I guess I'm just commenting on how this is just hugely dynamic and is happening right across the uh, right across the front. It just looks like an awfully hot war. They don't talk about it in the media very much, just our few media, but uh, it really seems to me like there's an amazing tension developing here across this whole country. Yeah, the Ru the Russians have really picked up offensive operations, and uh, they are trying to do everything they can to improve their own tactical positions before the snow flies. Uh, we'll we'll hit all of these battle battle maps in turn, but uh, they're not doing well. Uh, they are not pulling it off. However, it's it's not for want of trying. Uh, nor for want of resources, and we'll 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 talk about that too. And I think that's a great segue. Thank you so much, Lexicon, for bringing that up. We were about to turn to the map, the second one in the nest. So that's a great segue over to the next uh, next map in the nest, which is the one that uh, put out at fourteen forty five UTC. That's uh, Andivka. So, Chuck, I think uh, Lexicon did the intro for you. She she did. And we, we have that, uh, and some analysts are kicking this around, this metaphor, and I promise you, I will never use it. And that is, Andivka is the next Bakhmut. Uh, 
And they are right in that there is a red mitten reaching up, thumb to the south, fingers to the north, reaching up around uh, Andivka, as it did uh, in Bakhmut. Uh, Russia has been getting its butt kicked here for the last uh, 21 days. Uh, the map I put up at, uh, at 1445 today had, uh, you can see the artillery strikes are not on there. I had very, uh, unusually sketchy information that I could confirm, uh, this morning, uh, from the general staff. Uh, I'm sure we're going to do a little better on that tomorrow. Uh, subsequent information, uh, from other sources if you look uh, at the thumb of the map, uh, so you're looking around Toniki, uh, Vododayan, uh, uh, Natalove, uh, those places are scattered with burning Russian armor, infantry fighting vehicles, and tanks. They have been pushing very hard to get the thumb wrapped up around Abdivka. They're not doing it. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to let anyone breathe easy about Andivka. The Russians are pouring more forces in into this area. They are absolutely determined to take Andivka. But I'll also say this: they have been trying to take this place since 2014. That's a long time. Uh, if they, if they manage to link up the fingers and the thumb, uh, they are likely to find themselves in a three-dimensional urban battle space uh, in Avdivka, which we know will be extremely costly. Here's the interesting thing. Like back boot, taking Avdivka is not necessarily going to be the springboard to anything, right? If, if it were to go like this, if the Russians were actually to close fingers and thumb on this mitten, they'd have to fight it out doorknob to doorknob in Abdivka. It would be extremely costly, and it would gain them nothing that they don't have already, right? The prize in Donetsk City, they've already got, and that's the M30 highway, which goes west. And people ask me, Chuck, why aren't they, why aren't they howling up the M30 highway and plunging deep into Ukraine? Because they can't. They can't. Russia's ability to put together large-scale combined arms maneuver warfare continues to fail to impress the world. They don't seem to be able to do it. Could they launch a massive attack down the M30 highway, utterly leaving Andivka in their, in their rearview mirror? They sure could. They sure could. But the fact that the Russians get so overwhelmed with the detail, right? They're so, they're so set on taking some places on the map that have no tactical significance whatsoever. And I can't help sometimes but think, 
It's because the minister of defense has no military experience. You know, it's a guy who lives in an $18 million mansion in Moscow. He was a furniture salesman. He rose up through the ranks of the Ministry for Emergency Situations, enriching himself all the way until he became a five-star field marshal or whatever the hell he is. And now he's calling the shots. And surrounding Putin are a generation of officers, flag officers and generals that have no military talent whatsoever. They are thoroughly corrupt. They are absolutely syncophantic. They are political, not military creatures, and their performance on the battlefield shows it constantly. And if that weren't lethal enough, and it is, the field grade and company grade officers, right? So the lieutenants, the captains, the majors, the colonels, they're no better. They are no better. They've got a military heritage that tells their officer corps how many men you lose in an engagement is utterly irrelevant. That's not a measure of success or failure. If you kill 10,000 people to take one block of one neighborhood in a city, that's groovy. And as everyone listening, and I hope you are appalled, you can't, you can't fight like that. It doesn't matter if you've got all the bullets, all the... <laughs> all the uniforms to, re to put on, all the people to replace, all the people you've killed, eventually, and history shows this, from the Peloponnesian Wars on, your army will eventually turn on you. It will turn on you. But they don't seem to know that either. And Chuck, some of the losses, some of the reports of the losses, like 125 uh, infantry fighting vehicles, just, it seems like the, the losses they have here are just catastrophic and, and unsustainable. Um, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about the Andika area is that it looks like it's a lot of infantry vehicles and not a lot of tanks. Are, are you seeing that the Russians attack here in terms of what vehicles they're using and, and what, what heavy metal they have? It, it, the, the makeup of it is different from what we saw in places like Bakhmut and then uh, summer last year, places like Siervodonetsk. Yeah, I and I, I I think, and this is you know I'm I'm guessing, you know the the thing a tank can do best is kill other tanks and support your infantry in sort of dynamic uh, close combat. So you can imagine you got a rifle squad, you're slugging it out, and a tank shows up on your side and starts pumping shells into the enemy position. That you know that's how you win that engagement. The Russian seems to be you know, holding back a little bit in that, that's sort of the conventional way you'd employ tanks on the battlefield. But again, uh, you know, we've got the first 21st century war here and 20% of the world's javelin missiles are in Ukraine. So if you have a tank and it breaks the tree line and the Ukrainians see you, they're going to blow you up. And that just, just that, is 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 uh, puts the brakes on on Russia's tactical options and their combat effectiveness. And you know, John Spencer and I have talked about this this a lot. No Russian wants to be the first vehicle to leave the tree line. 
because they're going to get smoked. And in terms of defensive, defensive fighting, you know, uh, anti-tank guided missiles were, were normally seen as kind of a defensive weapon. And the West developed them uh, during the Cold War because the Russians had an overwhelming superiority of, of mechanized forces and armor in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And it was the anti-tank guided missiles were, were pressed into service in the West as, a, as kind of a force multiplier. But the Ukrainians used them, and we're really going to see them use them, use them in an offensive capability, right? They're going to use those javelin teams and in-law teams to back up their own maneuver warfare options as they develop. But uh, the situation in Avdivka is, is serious. It continues to be serious. Every indication that I've read uh, says that Russia is going to uh, redouble their efforts uh, to take Andivka, but I don't see, uh, you know, Fortune is not going to smile on on Russian operations around here. Again, they're they're attacking across the same ground, across the same axes, and they're doing it again and again, and they expect a different result, and they're not going to get it. All right, great. Thanks, Chuck. So let's go to a couple of hands as far as Andivka is concerned. So the order we have is Randy, followed by Lexicon, followed by Chuck. Randy, thanks for coming up. If anybody can sing uh, Sweet Georgia Brown in Polish, it might be you. So please go ahead and uh, ask your question <laughs> for Chuck. Hi, Randy. Hi, I, will, I will spare you. Uh, I had really uh, three quick comments. Um, one on Senator Tuberville. Uh, I will research that and use some personal sources and probably do a post on that in the next 48 hours uh, about you know how, how to get around it or what's happening uh, in an update. Um, second, uh, Chuck mentioned wargaming. And um, when I first came to Poland and was talking to Polish military officers at embassy and other receptions uh golly 15 years ago and i talked about wargaming they looked at me like i was talking about playing monopoly um and they just didn't do it in the uh, the soviet style army um they used uh, the russians use a lot of mathematical formulas how many shells per hectare do you have to fire to clear you know just how many men they they have a for formula for these things and that was their their planning. Um, and I worked on a group with a group informally of uh, CIA, DIA, military and ex-military guys, just a social gathering. But we had like all kinds of brilliant games. And, and uh, most of my knowledge of the, the screwed up Russian equipment was from those games. Um, and we try out innovative tactics. Um, we we uh, theorized a 90 millimeter Ares autocannon on a LAV chassis that could be slung under Chinooks and dropped for um, deep attacks and then removed uh, quickly and uh, extremely effective. There was very, very just a nightmare to defend against. Um, anyway, uh, second um, on, um, gosh, uh, well, I, I, on Indivka, I um, 
what what nobody uh, they they don't understand in the media in the U.S. when they talk about this as a stalemate, they're looking at the lines moving and not the overall battle field matrix uh, and the systematic reduction of Russian combat effectiveness, uh, as Chuck describes brilliantly, is creating, you know, a the the, the pending disaster for Russia. Um, and and I and I also think that if you're looking at the distances moved uh, in Ukrainian gains, you ought to not look at the whole map of Ukraine, which is friggin' huge. You ought, it ought to be the narrow band about forty kilometers you know, up and down the, the front, like a ribbon, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 kilometers, you know, draw a line, draw the line down the, uh, down the front, like a ribbon. And that's, that's the map. Uh, you know, what happens, you know, 200 kilometers, uh, West or even a hundred kilometers East is, uh, you know, largely irrelevant because there's not really anything a hundred kilometers East, uh, in most cases, um, uh, or very little, maybe 100, 150 for sure. Um, so the, the, ga- the push on that front is, is really what's important. Um, and the, um, problem is the Russians are reducing their vehicles, um, uh, and the, the, all this tremendous loss of APCs uh, means their ability to laterally shift units to go to plug the hole like the Dutch boy in the dike is going to be really limited. Most of these units we're talking about are leg infantry. Uh, and you tell a leg infantry unit to move, you know, 60, 70, 100 kilometers laterally. Uh, on a on a front uh, under fire, <laughs> that's a task. That's not going to be done without casualties. Not with all these drones buzzing around and cluster munitions and high mars and everything else. So the the that that's what the notion of fixing means. You fix them on the line, and then they have a very great difficulty also disengaging uh, and moving anything. And just the fact that they've rammed everything right up to the line, uh, makes those changes, lateral shifts, you know, much more difficult. Um, finally, I want to make just one comment about politics, um, to assure these Republicans do what they're talking about doing. Now we need to, um, uh, Push them and reward them by thank you, Speaker Johnson, for saying you're going to address Ukraine. That's very important. Here's why it's important. The the messaging that simply attacks them or calls all Republicans, you know, Russian sock puppets or something, that's not going to change any minds. That's not going to help Ukraine it, one little bit. You can disagree with Johnson on everything, but if you want him to give Ukraine aid and he says he's going to bring it up, he needs to get a messaging. There needs to be messaging to reinforce what he's doing. Um, I say this having talked to the staff of the speaker two weeks ago when, when after the speaker left and, you know, what they, what they, what they need. Uh, and they need positive reinforcement when they're saying good things. And when they're uh, still skeptical, they need to be informed. Um, anyway, that's all I'll say. Thanks. Randy, those are great, great military points. But, uh, you know, I will wade into politics at this point. We can make a difference. And I, I, I say this a lot. At the end of the show, call your representative in Washington. You won't have to talk to anybody. You'll leave a video of a phone message. They'll write it down and they'll log it. And 
the rascals, I mean, representatives in the House of Representatives, they're only there for two years. They want to stay there for four years. You, we can have an effect on them now. So let's have an outsize effect, right? It, it's so easy. And I say, look, I don't like people either. And I like standoff communications uh, modalities. But drop them an email or, you know, that phone message is good because it, uh, you know, you cared enough to pick up the phone. And, and Randy's right. You know, commend them for, uh, you know, they're sticking to Ukraine and realizing how important this is. Because it's horrific to try to imagine what Russia will do to a defeated Ukraine. And that in itself is enough to scare the hell out of any freedom-loving person. So, Randy, I, I appreciate uh, your, up, up, uh, your updates, and I just want to tell you I'm a follower. And I am too, Randy. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate that. And, I, you know, I just want to second that. You know, regardless of your stripe, if, if your lawmaker does the right thing, regardless of who they are, where they're from, their makeup, yeah, pat them on the back. So let's go ahead and we'll move on. Lexicon, you started up, start us up with Andivka. And uh, do you have another question for Chuck or do you have another comment about Andivka? Yeah. Yeah, well, a couple of questions, I guess. And I guess they're both sort of a little bit long. But, like, they look at this map of Abdivka, the forward edge of the battle area, just so long, so dense. There's so much going on. And this is not the sort of thing I understand. So you try to get an impression from looking at the videos that come out. You know, out of 10, there's going to be one where you see a long string of, as you said, leg infantry, guys on foot. But then the other nine are all these tanks and, or no, I guess they're armored vehicles of various sorts moving, or 1930s trucks, you know, literally 90-year-old vehicles. Um, and uh, anyway, you see all these vehicles trying to move. There's so much of it all around. And uh, I just, uh, one short question, does the difference from Bakhmut that Ukraine now has cluster munitions and there's different ways to approach the approaches of the Russians and how much of a difference does the possession of uh, cluster munitions make in this thing. And then just pulling back a bit, this guy uh, or team Tatarigami that I think a lot of us uh, like to follow. Now he's done a couple of really major threads. He says he's about to do another one. He's been so busy on other stuff, but uh, he did a sort of self-criticism a couple of days ago, said that I, I'm happy to admit when I'm wrong, and I was wrong. I said that Russia doesn't have it in them to mount any kind of offensive campaign, and we had said the same sort of thing ourselves for several weeks before, for a couple of weeks before Avdivka started, and he said, you know, say what, what you like about it, but they are mounting an offensive campaign. And uh, just uh, today he was saying that he will produce a longer thread on this whole situation, but somebody asked, well, just give us a hint, is it good or bad? And he said bad. So I just wondered if you'd seen uh, that team's posts and any of the, it's a little beyond me to keep the details in my head of what he talks about, but just this 
greater appreciation or he has no scorn for what the Russians are capable of mounting because it's just a very bloody big country and they keep pushing warm bodies in and an awful lot of armor and they keep pushing it in there. So in the if you've got a as as we often say, quality quantity has a sort of quality of its own, and it looks like that's what we're looking at. So that's a scary thing. How long can Ukraine confront that? So those are my questions. A short little one about cluster munitions and this overall appreciation. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, I am one of those guys who has been poo-pooing, uh, and I always bracket that with don't underestimate your enemy. Uh, and Russia has, uh, it has definitely turned up pressure at the points of contact. And those actions are framed somewhere higher up the food chain as offensives. Uh, but I keep looking at the results. They're, they're not good. They're not offensive uh, results. One of the things I keep seeing is uh, Russian uh, commitment of resources to the objectives. They're they're not they're usually not sufficient, right? Uh, for example, you know, Bakhmut. Uh, we see that going on constantly. But we're on the Andreevka map here. 2014 is when they started to try to take Avdivka. 2014. Uh, these actions that we see, uh, you know, to the south and west of Avdivka, actions on the thumb, they are littering the battlefield with burning tank hulls. They, we often say this too, they had the best plan possible from 1983. That didn't factor in N-laws, uh, javelins, and first-person drones that, that do not miss. So I, I don't underestimate uh, Russia's resources. Uh, I am also concerned that they are going to throw more and more resources slash, slash people into Avdivka and, and other places. But I, I, will, I will say this, and I'll probably be singing this as the Titanic goes under uh, with the band playing behind me. The quality of their, their manpower and their commitment to the fight is decreasing and it isn't going to get turned around. I uh, touched on that earlier. Nobody wants to be in the first vehicle to leave the tree line. And eventually, this Shoigu system of just shoveling more and more people into the same unimaginative attacks across the same axes, often across the same bits of terrain. It, you know, history shows us for thousands of years that your army will turn on you. If you lead it from defeat to defeat to defeat, and you convince your fighting men and women that you don't have victory in you, you don't have an idea to win this. They're, you know, they're going to turn on you. And that situation becomes much more likely when they are lacking shelter, lacking food, and that's coming this winter. Uh, 
So the little logistical hiccups here that we have now, you know, you can go three days without food. You listen, you can go three weeks without food, right? However, if you're, if it's, if it's zero Fahrenheit and you're burning 5,000 calories a day and you're not getting fed and you don't have adequate clothing, you're either going to have to surrender or you're going to die in that hole. So again, I, I, I skate on this fine razor blade of, uh, I don't want to say contempt for the enemy, but certainly I have contempt, contempt for their officer corps. Absolutely. Uh, their resources I take seriously. Uh, but I, you know, my money's still on Ukraine. And especially when I see the sorts of shenanigans that the Russians think are going to take Amdivka and they're not going to work. And Chuck, just like what we saw back over the summer with the, with the VDB, with the Blue Berets, they, they, they had contempt for their leadership and we saw exactly what they did. And if that can happen once and things are getting worse, there's no reason to think it can't happen again. Yeah, I have to. I, I, wondered I, if I agree. Well, oh, please go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to ask you if you could tell us in what ways the, having the cluster munitions, how exactly are they changing things compared to last winter when they fought in Bakhmut? Well, I, you know, I think the United States is, is learning a lesson, or it should. If we, uh, we send, you know, improved conventional munitions, cluster, cluster bombs over to the Ukrainians, and they take those 155 millimeter shells and they cut them up because they know or they have proven to themselves that the best way to deliver those cluster munitions is in first person drones because instead of bursting 92 of them over a over a space on the battlefield and uh, letting the good Lord and statistics figure out where they're going to land. They are taking them and strapping them to first person drones. So they know exactly where they're going to land. So that sort of tells me that the, that the, the, the tactical and technological situation is changing. If the Ukrainians thought that a that a 155 millimeter shell fired over the battlefield was going to be the most effective use of those cluster munitions, they wouldn't go to the time, expense, and dare I say, danger of taking a you know taking a saw to the to the casing of the shell and and cutting it apart. Uh, that being said. There are places where you want a fire mission and you've got, you've got cluster munitions. It can be incredibly effective, right? And that would be uh, troops in the open. That would be a defensive position that has no over, overhead cover. It would be a convoy on a, on a road that has stopped and, you know, uh, attempting to disperse, uh, et cetera. But I, so much is changing tactically and so much has changed in the last 600 days in warfare. It it's almost been like six decades. Uh, and we, we haven't seen the end of those changes. Right. But it, I would say to 
uh, friends of mine who are admirals and generals pay attention to what the Ukrainians are doing with those cluster munitions, right? If they're cutting them out of 155 millimeter uh, artillery shells, they're probably uh, dismantling them out of, out of every weapon system. And there are some places where a unitary warhead, uh, for example, if you want to hit the Kerch Bridge and you have an attack you don't want to hit it with cluster munitions. It won't really do anything. But you hit it with a 500-pound with a warhead, you're going to do some damage. So all of these munitions have their own specific applications. But Ukraine is doing a lot to, uh, to make sure they get delivered in the, in the most precise manner. Great. Thanks so much, Lexicon. That was an excellent question. Really appreciate that. You got us going on Andivka, and then you've kept us rolling right along. Uh, with that said, I think, Chuck, we've got a, another friend that wants to ask a couple of Andivka questions. And so uh, just to let you know, I know we've got a, a lot of hands, so we'll try to move along um, succinctly and quickly. I just um, note the order right now is Fletch, followed by Sucker, followed by Ben, and then Bruce. So I definitely want to get everybody in a question. So Fletch, uh, please uh, uh, appreciate you keeping, I know you've got a lot of good points, but I definitely appreciate you if you uh, uh, keep an eye on the time so that we can uh, make sure that you, you maximize your time with Chuck and we can get to others. So uh, Fletch, I appreciate uh, your question for Chuck. Please go ahead. Thanks. Yeah, on the Dika, Chuck, uh, just a couple of points. Um, Ukraine is taking this area seriously because they uh, moved the 47 to reserve up here and people will know that 47th was one of the main ones on Zaporizhia Rabitini area with Bradley's and and uh, Leos um, so yeah they've got a good reserve there um, to block that pincer move Chuck but the question I want to ask is really key to to the two main areas of the front you know we've got the southern area and we've got the eastern area um, and primarily, the only areas that I see Russia having the ability to do this type of offensive is in the eastern area, and, and that's down to their logistics, because they, in this area, have also interior lines of communication. You know, they've got Russia to their, to their rear. So I'd like you to explain um, how important that is that allows Russia to do the offensive. And I think you've already covered the fact that the quality I, I picked up from the general staff, um, that they're basically saying the quality of the force construct in this particular area is shown in the losses that they're occurring. So if you can just expand a little bit more on how poor quality and poor morale um, will affect the general outcome of what occurs in any offensive um, movement by the Russians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Adivka is, is one place on the battlefield where it, it's easy for Russia to supply its troops, right? It's a direct shot. Uh, as opposed to Kherson, where everything that goes into Kherson Oblast has got to come across Russia's land bridge, which is the southern occupied portion of Ukraine and or it's got to come through occupied Crimea and then up to Kherson. 
Here in Avdivka, things came come direct from the motherland into this location. Uh, there is a there's an odd thing about being surrounded, as Avdivka is, and that is you have interior lines of communication, right? And that is you're inside the barn, and the bad guys are outside the barn. So it's easier for you to move around in the barn than it is for them to go completely around it. So I'll I'll point out some. Uh, some things, some terrain features on on the battlefield that may eventually come in. If you look to the east of Andivka, you can see uh, starting around Vesely, which is about at one o'clock out of Andivka, you see that that reservoir there, and then you see a water course, and then you see that water course kind of dip around. If Russia is going to advance on Avdivka, from the east, it's got to get across that water course. Now, this isn't the greatest topo map in the world, but whenever you see a water course, it's going to be the lowest thing around, right? So Russia, in order to approach Avdivka from the east, has got to cross that river and then come up those hills. Kind of unlikely. Okay, so let's look to the west of Avdivka. We can see another line of water there. If you go south from Berdachi, which is on the O-series highway, the O-542, see that line of reservoirs and water features going down to Toniki. Then you can see it branches off to the west. So if you were to put your hand on Abdivka and imagine that it is captured, which, by the way, I'll predict now, will cost Russia maybe forty or 50,000 dead to take Avdivka as it took them in Bakhmut, you can see if Ukraine pulls back to that second series of, of water features, Russia's not going to do very well. Here's the interesting thing about what's going on in Avdivka, and I'll, I'll wrap this up for me. Russia is expending resources and manpower, and they are going to bust their ass to take Abdivka. Come hell or high water, they're going to put that file on Putin's desk and say, mission accomplished. To me, it's total BS. If you were to go south of Abdivka, put all your forces in Donetsk and blow west on the M30 highway, bypassing Abdivka, you'd, you'd really threaten Ukraine. But again, they're not fighting smart. And as long as they want to fight stupid, uh, this is the place to kill them. You're here, Chuck. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You both mentioned that uh, two things that definitely uh, are pretty clear here. The logistics, I think that was an excellent point by Fletch. And then the interior lines of communication as far as Abdifa is concerned. Um, so, Chuck, I, I'm going to make a Gettysburg reference. Um I'm about uh, a half hour away from that battlefield. Uh, think about that frequently, but do they talk about the, the fish hook and the interior lines of communication that the Union Army had there? And, and look at Andika, and you, you see that they've got that in spades, and on top of that, they've got the water features that you mentioned as well. And that in terms of uh, what the Ukrainians can do to, to keep that and to make that be a very, very costly, uh, you know, another back mood, as you said, it looks like it. it just from your maps, which does a really good job illustrating that, it, it, it's got all of those elements for sure. So um, I, I think that you know, that interior line of communication is, is so incredibly important. And the fact that they 
been there defending it now going on nine years as well. Um, do you do you think in terms of what the Russians have, do you, do you think that the Russians could over is this going to be something you think you're gonna, they're going to just keep throwing up against or, or do you see uh, this culminating possibly in the next couple of weeks? Boy, I, that, that, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. You know, what, what, what makes Russian commanders unpredictable to me is that uh, they don't care how many people they lose. Uh, they just don't care. It, 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 if you are a Russian soldier, you are a consumable. You're just like a bullet. No one cares how many bullets they shoot. They, they don't care how many troops they kill. And there is no recourse, right? There's no, you know, as long as you have the Louisiana lip lock on Putin, you're never going to get fired. Uh, he has been disappointed with some of his officers and he was shuffling through commanders for, of Ukraine. But since the mutiny, uh, you know, that was Prozoshin's gift because that welded him to Shoigu. And all of Shoigu's satellites, and no matter how incompetent they are, they're, they're, they're sort of in. As long as you are a Russian commander and you can tell the Kremlin you're attacking, they don't care how many people you killed. They, they just don't care. Uh, how long they're going to be able to keep it up in Abdivka? You know, I don't know. Uh, there is a prize. Believe me, you'll get uh, your villa on the on the Black Sea if you're if you're the commander who delivers Avdivka uh, to Putin. But but again, you look at that red mitten, right? We've we've all seen this movie before. That red mitten closed ever so slowly against Bakhmut, and it cost the Russians horrendous casualties, horrendous casualties. So I don't know. I mean, but that is that is a great question. I wish I could answer it. No, I think everybody wishes that they knew that. But I definitely appreciate your uh, – I think it's best – yeah, if we don't know, let's just wait and see for sure. Uh, Chuck, I think we've got a couple more hands, and then uh, definitely we can uh, move on to Block uh, uh, Mood if you're okay with it. Let's, let's go to Ben, and then we'll follow Ben up with Bruce. Ben, go ahead. Thanks, thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, hey, Chuck. Um, Hi, Ben. Uh, I what Randy said. Uh, we hear we heard a lot before the uh, before what the Middle East uh, lit up, which is the misconception that some people have that the line on the map is an indication of how the war is going. Um, so I think this is an opportunity now, since the focus is not on Ukraine for the line to move. And uh, and so as Budenov, as we've heard said, perhaps uh, by Christmas, there'll be some movement towards Crimea. Uh, that would be good movement on the map from, a, you know, for in as far as the uh, information space goes. But what would the Russians be able to do, uh, not knowing exactly what the Ukrainians would be able to do in order to thwart that um, and let's take Christmas out of it, but of greater concern is November and, uh, the election season coming up. So how do you have any thoughts on that? Wow. It's, um, you know, there are, there are so many 
variables in politics and uh, perception that play into it. Uh, I don't feel this way. I am not this cynical. But, uh, you know, this is the way things happen. If Andrievka were to fall, there is a way to spin that uh, into galvanizing American public support uh, for Ukraine. So uh, a military setback could be turned into an advantage. Um, I I look at places like Abdivka, and just as we saw in in Bakhmut, I I, I see Ukraine um, taking advantage of this this extreme flaw in Russia's war fighting. And that is Putin wants cities, right? He, he wants gains. Um, and, you know, the American public, to some extent, uh, they think, uh, you know, what, what happened this summer? Why didn't Ukraine take more terrain? And they ignore the fact that what happened this summer was Russia was, was fought onto the defensive. And, you know, it's funny to say this. Now we're in the context of talking about the places where Russia is pouring in more troops, more resources, and there are obvious Russian objectives. To my estimation, that hasn't risen to the level of an offensive yet. They, they're not taking Abdivka, right? They're, they're losing ground in Bakhmut. They're, they, they still have a gaping hole in their lines in, in Orkhiv. And all of these battle spaces where Russia is fighting, to our Russian listening guests, you're taking your eye off the ball because there's going to be a crossing of the Dnipro. I promise you. And there's going to be a thrust through Kherson Oblast towards Crimea. And that's a long way from Abdivka. Right, it's an even longer way to Bakhmut and an even longer way to Kupiansk. Um, you know, I, I'm still the guy that's telling you this war is going to go on for about four more years. There's going to be highs, there's going to be lows, but I'm still fixed to this. Russia can't win it, not with the army they have right now, and not with the leaders they have. So, uh, it's 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 a long it's a long game, but in in my estimation, it's it's Ukraine that's going to come out on top, and it's it's the technology, it's the it's the fighting spirit, it's the combat combat effectiveness. Because remember, you can have every single thing in your advantage. You can have air superiority, air defense superiority, better tanks, better artillery, better everything. But if your soldiers don't give a damn anymore, you just can't win. And hey, look at Vietnam right? The soldiers just didn't give a damn anymore, you know, for perhaps the right reasons, but you can't win a war that way. And you can't win an imperial war of aggression that way. Yeah, indeed. And one thing too, that, you know, you're, you're exactly right, you know, in terms of the, the land aspect of it, but you know, Chuck, I think we go back, you know, we're at day six, 10. Now, if we go back and look at say around day 200, we were talking about things like Russia being on snake Island and, in that period of time, the thing that, that I look at is we've gone from talking about Russia being on Snake Island to Russia being chased off oil platforms to Russia being chased, uh, their naval forces chased completely out of Sevastopol. It seems like that, you know, just huge chunks of, 
uh, the Black Sea, um, they they cannot operate in any longer. And, and yeah, granted, you know they've got uh, the Ukrainians have a, a lot of hard fighting to do, and it's going to take years. But but it seems like we've got plenty of good indicators out there between the the, the extreme attrition that we're seeing on the Russian forces to what's happening in the Black Sea, to what's happening in terms of the uh, armaments and the attacks that Ukrainians are able to do in increasing number and increasing sophistication and innovation, as you've noted so well, that uh, I think that, that you know, they very much are winning. And it may, it may not happen to where you see just huge swaths of territories um, just taken. But in terms of the force that they're going up against, it seems like, especially with places like Evandivka, we're seeing attrition uh, in we're seeing all kinds of indicators that uh, Russia is, is losing this, and it's just a question of time. Yeah, and there's, there's, you know, just one other thing is there's one guy who's keeping this war going, and that's Putin. And until he dies or steps down or is removed or trips in the shower, as long as Ukraine stays in this fight, right, uh, Putin doesn't doesn't you know, and I'm not saying that he is anywhere close to lo- to losing power, but you know, look, don't forget the mutiny, don't forget that his whole VDV threatened to mutiny, don't forget that every day some Russian unit gets a cell phone and makes a makes a mutinous video, uh, and don't forget what's going on south of Avdivka. Right now there are. 300 Russian soldiers getting the brief for tomorrow's dawn attack over the exact same ground that their buddies got killed on yesterday morning. Put yourself in that soldier's, those soldiers' shoes. They're going to get creamed tomorrow. And they know it. And Russia's just shoveling more people in there. You just can't do that forever. So we'll see. We'll see indeed. Bruce, you've been very patient. Go ahead. Hey, Chuck. Um, I guess I have a broader question, or, or two broader questions. Um, you, you know, so Ukraine's finally gotten these uh, American Abrams tanks, and, you know, there was a lot of talk early on about the Leopards. From my casual, non-professional observations, I don't see... I don't see Ukraine using these tanks very much. And and so I I kind of wanted to get sort of a double whammy from you. One is, um, you know, what's your opinion now that we're approaching the end of the summer? You know, what's your opinion of the, the units that NATO trains? Do we have a sense of how they did? Um, I, I have a feeling that that maybe we may have been a little bit chauvinistic in the way we were training these people. I'm not sure everything we trained them in was maybe useful for this particular war. Maybe the training should be going the other way around, but you know, I, I know that I, I know that with the British Marines that they trained and such forces, I know that's paid off in dividends already. You know, we're seeing that with the and we were seeing that in the attacks on Crimea, but you know, I, so I guess a, a double whammy question, you know, is Ukraine, how's Ukraine utilizing the armor that we've given them or are they holding on to it? Oh, you're breaking up a little bit there. Yeah, we're losing you, Bruce. Bruce. Oh, Bruce, I think we lost yeah, Bruce, you, bud. 
if you need to recycle, please go ahead and recycle. We'll be happy to bring you up uh, and uh, give you a chance to answer that back. Um, yeah, I, I, I can answer the half a question I heard. Sure. Um, you know, at least as far as the Abrams go, there are 31 in, in country. Uh, and again, I'm not an armor officer, uh, but they are going to best serve the cause if they are kept together. Uh, and uh, they are made the tip of the spear somewhere. Uh, operating as a group, they're to take advantage of, of uh, every uh, criterion of superiority that they have, right? They've got, they've got better optics, they've got better senses, uh, sensors, they have longer reach on their main gun, and uh, bearing in mind uh, what's the best thing a tank can do is kill, kill an enemy tank. Um, during the Kharkiv offensive, there was a piece of video that, uh, was pretty rare indeed militarily. It showed a platoon of Ukrainian armor that had broken all the way through and come upon a battery of Russian self-propelled guns. And you saw Ukrainian tanks shooting up these, uh, these self-propelled guns. I mean, that was a breakthrough. Uh, that is a moment that will be studied in armor school and how you make that happen, right? Uh, getting your tanks into the enemy rear and letting them run amok. Um, how, how are the Ukrainian uh, soldiers trained? I think in every category, uh, in every military occupational uh, specialty, they're being brought up to NATO standards. I mean, the sexiest thing we see, right, are their special operations forces. We've seen them take down the oil platforms. We've seen them cross the rivers operating in the Dnipro. You get a big bang for that buck, and it also resonates in the information space. But that is not to uh, underestimate, uh, you know, the, uh, the cavalry troopers that they've trained. Those are mechanized infantry. That's what they... Americans call it, uh, you know, their armor operators, their artillery, electronic warfare guys, everything else. So uh, we talk about quantity has a quality all its own, but uh, quality, quality is pretty important too. And especially if you can concentrate that quality at the point of attack. So Bruce, I hope you're back up because we missed the rest of your question. There. No, he had to drop. We haven't, um, haven't gotten there. We'll definitely keep an eye out for him. Um, we do have uh, we do have another hand for you, Chuck, and then um, we can uh, if uh, Bruce isn't back, we can uh, mosey on to to Bach Boot. Uh, so, Will from the Workers Paradise, go ahead. Will, good day, Chuck. Uh, sorry, I, I was talking. Good I was doing. I was see. I take lessons from you on everything, mate. I was uh, press. I didn't press the button, and I started talking. Um, not as, not as effective as you might think. Um, so uh, my question is kind of like Bruce's. Um, and, and that is, look, I, I uh, bang on at, a, at my during my shift while you're while you're tucked in your uh, bed, having dreams of snowboarding about essentially if if <laughs> if, if, if Ukraine get they, they have long range strike capability now um, and uh, F-16s are coming or, or fourth or fifth generation fighters are coming. Um, but but clearly not fast enough. But if I discount those things, um, I regularly bang on about the fact that basically Ukraine 
it can win this from here out if they get XXX million dollars of bullets for everything every month that I've been saying for about a year. Now, because that just bare bones basic stuff is so incredibly important to keeping uh, going, you, you note from the Ukrainian discussions that they're having that they're still talking about uh, shell hunger, not, you know, yeah, they have DPICM, but they could they could be blunting these attacks even better if they had a higher rate. Uh, and, you know, they've they've achieved 6000 shells a day, maybe even seven sometimes. So they have localized. They've got uh, parity or even uh, superiority or, or, or advantage, I guess, artillery wise um, in some places. But other. So if I think about other than that, right, if they uh, if they get xxx million dollars of bullets for everything every month noting that you know north korea got theirs in there in two weeks from when when asked for is there any other significant capability that you see missing from the from the ukrainian side other than bullets for everything f-16 fighters and replacements of lost armor and armored fighting vehicles that would make a significant difference in shortening this war Wow. You know, to me, they, they, they just need everything. And what, what kills me is that everything we're, we've talked about, you know, F-16s, Attackums, HIMARS, everything started out as a hard no from Washington. And then a will consider it. And then it finally gets delivered to Ukraine. And uh, to me, it's, it, it's amazing that some people can can look at what's going on in the battlefield in Ukraine and they completely lose sight of the fact that if it was the United States Army fighting in these conditions, they would likely be doing worse, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, no air superiority, no artillery superiority. Uh, you know, uh, look, look at the difference in the air forces. All, all of those things all of those disadvantages that Ukraine has done so much to overcome, uh, you know, but to me, one of the most important things that Ukraine really needs and can put into use every day, long range precision strike munitions so that these formations of Russian forces can be broken up before they get to the zero line that key logistics can be addressed when it's still in the packing crate 40 kilometers in the rear and nodes of command communications and control can be interdicted. You know, to me, there's no excuse, right? Uh, we've got attackums, for example, that are, that are expiring. You know, these things have a shelf life. Uh, so instead of disassembling them and blowing them up out in the desert, let's get them to Ukraine. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely with you, Will. It's, uh, it, it, it's frustrating to me a, a lot of the time. And uh, I, don't, I don't ever mean to cop out with the they need everything, but they really do. Yeah, but what I mean, what I mean in that is, if we're talking to our elected representatives, in sure that they need everything, um, it, but they they need the continued support. But we're not really asking for that much, right? Because uh, if if I look at uh, if the United States were to provide uh, uh, two hundred million dollars of bullets for everything every month, 
even the $5.4 billion that uh, the president still has in his back pocket pre- on the previous presidential drawdown will support apply that for 11 months. So we're really not talking about that much massive support unless there is something that they need that we haven't identified yet that would break this open and quicken things up. I mean, other than you know, the Marine Expeditionary Force that's currently sitting on the uh, aircraft carrier uh, in in uh, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, th- that would, be, but not not if that not something like that. I mean, is there something um, that they really could do uh, supply wise that that uh, uh, would break anything? Do you see anything? Because I I do not, and I'm I'm genuinely curious to find out what else we might harp on other than more of everything every month. You know, to me, it's it's air defense uh, so that uh, not everything has to protect Ukrainian cities all the time uh, and long an abundance of long range precision strike munitions, whether that be JDAM ERs, JDAMs, uh, HIMARS, ATACAMs, on and on, because if you, you know, you look at one way to look at an attackums is it is like this mega sniper rifle, right? You can identify lucrative targets deep in the enemy rear, and you know, Ukraine has a well-developed human intelligence network all throughout the occupied territory, and uh, there are so many targets that could be picked off. But you know, we talk about the local commander gets a target folder every morning with. 20 to 30 different targets, but he can only hit five of them, you know? So to me, uh, air defense, precision, long range, uh, munitions. Um, and if they had adequate supplies of both, they could really change the situation on the zero line, right? By making sure that Russia can't fly 60 airstrikes a day, right? Make the zero line, into if it flies, it dies. And also an abundance of, uh, you know, free the high Mars. But it, sometimes it really seems to me that, you know, Washington, Washington is only turning the heat up in this pot so slowly. Uh, one of the things that has to happen, conditioned for victory in this war, is to prevent Russia from ever doing this again. And that means destruction of their ground forces. And as far as this summer goes, uh, look at the casualty rates. Look at the losses. I mean, Russia's, Russia's ground power is being destroyed slowly but surely. Yeah, indeed. And uh, Chuck, I, I think this is a, a great time. We, we did actually earlier have a, a question from uh, someone in the audience um, and I think this is a good time for me to kind of feather this in there. And then if you're okay with it, that's uh Muzi on the back moot. Um, related sure. to, you know, you talked about air defense. So I think um, they were really curious about um, you know, possible risk of um, infrastructure attacks on power stations and the like, like what we saw last year. Um, wanted to ask uh, what your thoughts are as far as the prospects of that happening. Um, and if they do happen, um, would we potentially see them in the, the same numbers? And uh, if we see them in the same numbers, what type of, uh, in terms of air defense, do we think the Ukrainians would uh, be able to uh, to blunt that better uh, this year, better than uh, 
they did, at least in the early parts of it last year. Oh, I definitely see that campaign coming again against the power grid. Uh, that's going to be really high on uh, Russia's, uh, you know, priority targeting. You know, the, the Shahids have sort of shown themselves to be uh, actually pretty obsolete, right? They, uh, they generally get shot down 70% of the time, up to 100% of the time. But the Russians are very good about coordinating these incoming attacks. Um, and again, so Ukraine's air defense has to be pulled back to the cities to defend those civilian targets. Uh, and that means, you know, because those more capable systems, even point defense systems, which were ideally designed to protect infantry units closer to the front, those things are protecting power stations. They're protecting, unfortunately, apartment blocks uh, and those sorts of things. So short answer is I absolutely expect that to, to happen. And uh, I was talking to somebody uh, uh, just came back from Ukraine, and unfortunately, uh, there's this perception among the people there that the Russian air attacks have lightened up a bit. And uh, that gave me pause, because I think what's happening is they're saving up. Uh, I think we're going to see uh, the equivalent of Operation Rolling Thunder against Ukraine's power grid, and I think that'll happen you know, within the next couple of weeks. Well, let's let's hope that we've got better air defense and we, the Ukrainians are able to, to marshal their air defense to, to counter that for sure. So with that said, um, I know we've got a couple more hands, but uh, I think it's time. Uh, we're at the uh, 9.30 mark check, so just you know, quick uh, time check on that. But I think it's uh, time, if you're okay, we'll go to the third map in the nest, and that's the one you put up at uh, UTC 13.30 earlier in the day. Uh, related to Bakhmut. Uh, some interesting developments there, indeed. Beautiful Bakhmut. Um, a great place to be buried if you are a Russian soldier. Uh, we'll, we'll go from the top of the map. Um, this area I like to call the Nose, um, which is the little peninsula of Russian control that stretches across the M03 highway north of the urban area uh, for the I don't know how many at the time uh, Russians again attacking uh, Bodem Vinka. Uh, again, this was a round trip for about one third of the Russians who attacked. Uh, the other two thirds uh, didn't make the uh, return leg. Uh, Russian losses were, uh, were heavy. Uh, and you know, once again, this is an attack across the same ground, along the same axes, and very likely at the same time of day. Uh, if you zoom in there and look at the look at the terrain, uh, Russians were actually having to attack downhill towards a water course and then up on the other side. That is the sort of terrain that. If you wanted uh, a positive outcome, you would need exceptional superiority at the point of attack. Again, this is one of those failures of leadership sort of things. 
if the objective was to reach and hold Bodemvinka, uh, the force allocation was woefully inadequate. Uh, again, you know, I don't exactly have the order of battle numbers for this particular engagement, but I will strongly hypothesize this was a platoon or company size engagement, which is what the Russians traditionally uh, send. If it's a company size engagement, they lose a platoon or a platoon and a half every time they do this. So these attacks are, are essentially pointless, but they're being carried out because the orders from above are, tell me that you're attacking. Okay, so we go, we go south, uh, there, uh, south of the H-32 highway, there to Ivanovsky. Uh, if I said this was the 300th attack on Ivanovsky, I, I, I might be wrong by a couple of hundred. They try and they try and they try, and their force allocation is never adequate. They can't reach it. They just can't do it. So we go south. Next next spot, Klishvika. I can sort I can give you the the lowdown on the terrain. You have to you have to move uphill till you get to the railway line. Then you charge across about a mile of open terrain, and you approach a hill that is about two hundred feet tall. And as soon as you poke your head over the railway line, you are taken under fire by Ukrainian forces that literally are shooting down through the tops of your helmets. Again, not a place to attack. Russian forces would be well advised to attack somewhere else, and in fact, anywhere else, but they keep pushing at Klishvika. The only reason I can think is some units lost it and Putin only wants to hear that it's been taken back. Down to Abdrif and Divka, same thing. Uh, all, of this, all of this fighting here, in my estimation, it is all Ukraine engaging Russia where Russian commanders have been compelled to fight. Because it, it doesn't matter <laughs> if Russia took back Klishvika. It doesn't matter if they got to Bodemvinka. As long as Chasivyar is in the hands of the Ukrainians, it doesn't matter what's going on in Bakhmut. But again, a wiser commander or one with more scope of action, maybe more insight, would have seen that 10 months ago. Thanks, Chuck. That, that is... In fact, like you said, hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, you know, you know what the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That just seems like that's the, that's the MO here of, of the Russians with some of these attacks, especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, south of Bakhmut when it gets to Klyzvika. Um, I'd be really interested to hear, uh, we've got one hand, um, really interested to hear what, uh, what Fletch wants to say about uh, this and what his questions are. So, Fletch, uh, you got some comments and uh, you want to have a little colloquy with Chuck about Bakhmut? Well, about the whole. Um, and what I'm going to bring in here, Chuck, I know that Will posed a very key question, I think. You know, what 
would they need to change things? Um, and I've been going on for a long time now about you know the, the feedback I pick up from the general staff uh, and specifically the advisors to Salusni. And, and there's two things um, I think that are going to be coming online. Um, we may be seeing them in the recent package. Um, it's unknown yet, um, one element. Um, now, Dan Rice, and you've heard of Dan Rice, no doubt. Um, he was the advisor to Zaluzny, and, and he lobbied um, Congress and, and um, et cetera. Now, Dan Rice's personal opinion um, is that the M26 rockets, which are cluster munitions, will be the game changers. Um, and though we've also had notification that the ground launch small diameter bombs um, are ready to be sent to Ukraine. Now, I'm thinking of all the fronts now, Chuck, um, because apparently there's, there's hundreds of thousands of these M26 rockets. Now, we've seen how they were a game changer to driving back the rotary wings um, through attackums when they hit the airfields, and they had 950 cluster munitions in them. Well, they're called APAMs, anti-material and anti-personnel. But the M26 rockets have 650 and 500 nod cluster munitions within them. Now, Dan Rice perceives these are a game changer, um, and certainly in any breakthrough, uh, with that amount of cluster munitions, and if they had thousands of them, uh, which he which he did say was a, a caveat, if they had thousands of these, they would change the dynamics of any breakthrough. And also to the ground launch small diameter bombs, which are the precision ones, which can go up to 150. Now, picking up on what Zelensky said today about he believes he can see victory now with, with all the capabilities that they will be having. Now, bearing all this in mind, Chuck, and pulling it all together, now, Bakhmut, um, I, I, I still agree with what your perception is. It's a holding. They're fixing the troops there, and they're doing a good job. But on those two capabilities, uh, and you know, taking into mind Kirsten, how those ground launch, you know, launch um, precision ones um, can make a big difference, and the um, larger cluster munitions, because you're right in saying the ones they use now only have 72. But if they have thousands of rockets that have 600 plus in them, then can you give a, an overview of how you perceive that will be very, very useful and possibly game-changing, like Dan Rice says, as far as breakthroughs could possibly occur, and also used in the defensive of stopping the Russians from advancing? Yeah, it, it, it is definitely both. And with an adequate supply of those, you can negate every Russian forward aviation operating base. You you can you can destroy it. Uh, and what you know, what's more, Russia won't be tempted to uh, forward deploy its aviation. So that means, you know, longer, longer inbound trips and longer outbound 
it it complicates Russian aviation logistics. So they're going to have to go to forward area refueling points, um, which can be as simple as a fuel truck hiding under a tree waiting for a helicopter to land and get refueled. But uh, that, that's even on a case-by-case basis. Because if Ukraine has got enough of these, these sorts of munitions, you know, they can take out every FARP that they find out, that forward air refueling point. They can also target every airfield within 100 miles of the zero line. So that definitely could be uh, a game changer. Also, um, taking out really lucrative logistic, logistics targets, uh, ammunition, um, fuel oil and lubricants. Uh, we also saw just today uh, possibly three, at least two, Russian uh, S-400 uh, air defense systems were taken out by attackers with cluster munitions. I put up a tweet about it, and uh, Russia's been smoking its own dope uh, regarding uh, the S-400 can shoot down attackers. Well, uh, it turns out they can't. It turns out that they never could. But I'd like to remind everybody, every time you get a hit on those S-400s, watch what happens in the next 24 hours. Because when Ukraine creates uh, situational awareness vulnerabilities for Russia, it always follows them up. So uh, let's, let's see uh, when the sun comes up tomorrow. And let's see what the general staff reports uh, on the docket tomorrow, Fletcher. Yeah, I agree entirely on that. And I think the M26, because they're shorter range, they're normally around the 30 kilometer. Um, they're going to be excellent for taking out both materiel, i.e. IFEs, um, and also the, um, the trench lines. Because 650, they fire three or four of them for an area, Chuck. That's looking good for uh, opening up a, 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 an area for a bridge. Absolutely. And that many submunitions, like 900 of them, uh, you know, you're not safe in a vehicle. Uh, you're, you're quite possibly not safe in a tank because these things are what they called um, HEDP, high explosive dual purpose. Uh, you know, imagine this thing is half a falling beer can. If it lands on top of you, uh, it, 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 it detonates with a shape charge. So the, the, one of the weakest places on a tank is its top armor. So uh, you're right. And if these things are more available, if they don't have to be husbanded, if they don't have to be counted like platinum's, platinum hen's teeth, uh, they can get into the fight. And, you know, those are going to be bad days for Russia when that happens. Because, you know, the S-400s that are supposed to protect their prime targets, uh, look, Ukraine is sending a message. You know, not only are we going to hit the targets that S-400s are allegedly protecting, we're going to take out the S-400s. Yeah, and, and we've seen that, you know, just thinking back, and, and Chuck, I've had the great pleasure to, to be doing this with you and with Alan, and, and uh, uh, I've been uh, learning a lot from, from both of y'all. I've learned, learned a lot from you as far as military uh, history goes, and I've been learning from Alan how to, 
how to keep things going here. And uh, as far as uh, composting, you're, you're doing you're doing Alan proud tonight. <laughs> you're doing him proud. Okay, all, all credit. You too, Nancy. You're doing him proud. Thank you. Thank you much. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll go back to when we were talking about uh, how to uh, uh, bullet points, and we were talking about taking out that S400 on Crimea with the special ops. And we saw all the stuff that happened there. That was the first thing that came to mind when you talked about if you take out an S400, um, you know, watch what happens after that. And uh, that that's really going to be very intriguing, I think. Um, that, that's a really valid, really valid point. Um, question I have for you, Chuck, is these S400 systems, th these things are, are some of the most sophisticated and expensive pieces of Russian material that they have. I mean, we're talking in the billions of dollars, and they're the ones that the Turks bought were extremely expensive. Are these things, in terms of S400s, uh, these things just don't necessarily grow on trees. Are, are you seeing these uh, um, you know, being depleted? Do, do you, are you seeing less S400s? And the reports that you that you're hearing from it and Fletch might be something interested to, to see uh, you're, you're, since you're really uh, listening to a lot of the general staff reports as well. Uh, are do we have an indication that the S four hundreds are are starting to um, um, starting to become a little uh, little endangered? You might say. Yeah, Fletch. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not up on the numbers. Uh, I know they don't grow on trees. What what what's the attrition rate looking like for these systems? Yeah, well, the S400 is the premium one, um, <clears throat> but the main one for uh, taking out attackers is the 300V. Um, but what's happened? Um, if you can imagine, when they took out um, the helicopters, and there was two. Uh, basic areas they addressed, which was Luhansk, uh, which was um, an airfield there, and also um, in Berniadansk. There was two areas. Now, previous to that, we know that they had um, taken out some air defence in Crimea itself, because you can imagine um, the Crimea covering the Berniadansk area. And they'd also taken out some air defence um, around the Saporizhia area as well, which was likely covering the Bernadamsk area. Um, but they also took out some air defence and some radars when they did the attackums. But what's happened with the air defence, a lot of it has been moved out to protect Russia itself. You have to remember, a lot of air defence was moved um, and it was all shifted around. So while they have particular air defences, Chuck really summed it up right. When Ukraine takes out a Pacific air defence, now I saw um, on the attack, uh, which was yesterday, um, there was three, uh, someone mentioned three batteries of air defence destroyed. Now I'm not sure if it was three batteries, I, I, it might have been three launchers, part of the battery. Um, but what normally happens is they take out these particular, Pacific air defences for reasons. And why would they want to take one out in Luhansk? Um, and Chuck, you, you know, I'm, I'm at a loss why, unless it's to clear more of a passage for storm shadows, because we haven't heard a lot of storm shadows lately. Um, so this could be the case. But they do have them. Um, and the whole point of having the attackums is to take these, um, these assets out so it will weaken the point for air defence. And normally what follows is some form of storm shadow attack, 
or, or, or something of that ilk. I mean, is that your general opinion, Chuck? Spot, spot on, Fletch. Absolutely. Um, I expect that attack might be going on as we speak. Uh, they're, they're really good at doing just that. So let's watch the docket tomorrow and, uh, and see what they got. No, I don't know for certain, but I have a hunch it might be a command node they're, they're going to hit uh, as a result of this, um, if we're talking about Luhansk. But again, you know what? That's just a guess. Yeah, they took out um, the headquarters of one of the brigades uh, that was attacking um, Avdivka. Um, and, and yet, you know, it, it could be a precursor. Um, but there's always there's always a reason when they take out a main air defense area, um, and they've already taken out the airfield. So um, we normally see something, and and yeah, it could be command and control check again. Um, but let's hope it is something of a high value. You know, I want to see the see the day when they've got enough storm shadows that they can whip them out on targets that don't have to be. Uh, of the highest value. Uh, but, you know, right now, Ukraine is only deploying those against the most, absolutely the most uh, lucrative targets. And you know what? I, I have no idea what they're clearing the way for, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, S-400 casualties always precede, uh, you know, a major cruise missile uh, storm shadow attack. And those attacks always address really, really important targets. Yeah, here's hoping it is something like that. I, I know some maybe electronic warfare or something like that. That would be uh, that would be uh, that would be extraordinary. So I, I see that we actually for, do not have any hands right now. So Chuck, we have we have cleared the decks, and I know we've got about 12 minutes still in. <laughs> so. Um, I, I think just want to kind of ask you, do we want to go to another map? And I also just want to give a couple minutes at the, the end of this session of bullet points. I know uh, I've learned from uh, Mr. Brewer that you're supposed to um, um, close this out in a, in, a, in a really unique way. And so I definitely want to have about three. So, Nancy, just a heads up. I, I've needed just about three minutes to close that out uh, as we get close to, to 10 o'clock. Um, so I think what we might want to do now is uh, we've got uh, another map. So, um just want to hit uh, Kupiansk real quick. Uh, that's uh, the map we put out right before the Bakhmut map, and uh, looks like there's some some really fascinating uh, uh, repelling of Russian attacks there, uh, just on the northeast of uh, Kupiansk. So, Chuck, what do you see there? Yeah, you know, uh, I see kind of the same thing. Uh, Russian superiority here in this area is at least five to one. Uh, we've seen the usual attacks, uh, uh, you know, on uh, Sinkiva. Uh, they have been attacking that almost daily. Uh, what was interesting in, in development was they actually got to uh, Petropavlivka today. You can see I've, uh, I've put the round trip arrow there. Um, again, uh, whenever you see one of those round trip arrows, uh, per force, that means there were not adequate Russian resources uh, allocated to take that objective. Uh, interestingly, they almost have 
almost always have enough resources to reach the objective, but they're not holding it. And that could be for a bunch of reasons, including that the reinforcements don't arrive. Uh, there could be mix-ups in communication. It could be uh, maybe there wasn't a, a backup force. Uh, maybe they just didn't obey orders to advance. Uh, but again, so we go down to the bottom of the, la of the map to uh, Ivanivka, uh, same thing. Attacks there almost on a daily basis. And once again, uh, Russian forces uh, repelled. Uh, this, this is an area that, I, that I, I keep an eye on because there are a lot of Russian forces here. Uh, and this is another place. Uh, this is way up, way up north, way up in the north and east. This is the New England of Ukraine. And Ukrainian war planners want the Russians to be up here because the, uh, the only game in town is Kupiansk. And so zoom in on the city there. You can see the river uh, runs straight through town. Uh, and the west part of town, uh, it's up on a bunch of bluffs. So even if Russia made it to Kupiansk, again, the, the slaughter in an urban battle space there will be biblical. So, again, what Russia thinks it's doing here, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. The city of Kupiansk will be a very, very tough nut to crack. And uh, they, don't, they don't seem to be able uh, to carry out an assault uh, at any greater range than a mile and a half or two miles. So, uh, again, I, I, I don't like to underestimate my enemy, but I am not, I am not, uh, I'm not impressed with, uh, with Russian success up here at Kupiansk. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, again, it's the same thing. It's a definition of insanity, the same thing uh, over and over again. And uh, it, 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 it just the thing that confounds me, Chuck, is it's just that how they have all these dispersed attacks and they, they just never seem to, to concentrate um, I mean, that they, you know, so much of so much of their forces are just you know, spread out, and they do these predictable attacks over and over again. Um, it, it just it, it, it's predictable as as the sunny weather in San Diego. Um, well, I, and yeah, and you know, you you look at Petro uh, Pavlika. Let's say they got to there. I mean, just just look south at that river. Look at those bluffs. They're not going to go any farther than that um you know <laughs> again why they fight where they fight and why they commit resources where they do uh you know I, I i can't make sense of it so it's hard to predict what they'll do because they do uh what appear to be some really counterproductive things uh, indeed indeed well, Chuck, we've got a couple of hands and uh, i recognize a couple of these hands and i know we've just got a couple of minutes left with uh bullet points so let's go to casper and then anki casper you have a question for chuck yes thank you um you mentioned ukraine um might be the first one to use the swarm of drones i've been thinking the second one uh, might be russian army 
So automatically, I've started thinking about ways to counteract. Uh, one idea appeared in my mind, but I'm not sure if you would like to hear it before Ukraine used its. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Share share what you've got. And um, I've just been imagining if its swarm is really dense. Uh, why not shoot them down with cluster m- m- missiles? That would be um, probably effective. Uh, you, you tried. You'd, you'd sort of be trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. Um, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know that that would that would work. Um, you know, anything's better. Uh, better than nothing, but you'd also sort of have to call in a cluster munition strike on your own position. So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. Jury's out for that on me. But uh, what, what I do think, uh, uh, and you, you've made a good estimation, uh, Russia is likely working on, on the same thing. But what, you know, what, what's good for us is that it's very hard for Russia to do anything that's going to surprise Ukraine because everywhere in the occupied territory, uh, overhead imagery provided by NATO informs Ukraine and they, they can confirm uh, their overhead suspicions with a well-developed human intelligence network. So I even think that preparations for a sort of swarm attack would likely be picked up by Ukraine uh, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see, uh, I, if I had to make a bet, I think Ukraine's going to be the first, the first nation to, uh, you know, to release that swarm. Uh, and these are tactics that first occurred, uh, in Syria. Uh, it wasn't a swarm attack, but a multi-drone attack, uh, struck a Russian airfield. I, I'm not sure if it was TARDIS. Or, or near Damascus, but uh, you know that that was an alarm bell to a lot of people, uh, and especially to the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, well, thanks, Catherine. And so I think we've got one more question for you, then, Aki. Then I've got a hopefully a, a special uh, a special way that we can close out the, this uh, another great um, episode of Bullet Points. Um, and I want to recognize Anki. She, she was here last Thursday and had wanted a question for you. Couldn't couldn't stay, but I'm so glad Anki was able to come back and, and ask you a question, especially to close out a bullet point. So, Anki, please go ahead. Hi there, mic check. Wow, we great. got you. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. So, first of all, name's Anka, but you know, whatever. It's a scary four-letter word. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I mean, it's clear to me, Chuck. First of all. Long-time listener, um, huge fan. I much appreciate, as somebody who knows zilch, literally zilch about military matters, I really appreciate you putting all of this information out there, giving us, you know, what you learn about and giving us an interpretation of it. Secondly, here's, here is, here's a lovely question to end the evening with, in my opinion. Um, knowing that you... Um, you know, knowing all of our feelings towards Zelensky, Zeluzhny, and Budinov, I would like to speak something into existence, hopefully, that you, Chuck, will have the opportunity to speak with one or all three of them. 
And when you do, what would you ask them or what would you tell them or what would you say to them? Oh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what I could say to them. Um, uh, you, you know, President Zelensky has emerged as one of the greatest wartime leaders in the last 200 years. Alan and I talk about this a lot, and I don't think it's much of a push to put him on the same level as Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and Lincoln, especially, because Lincoln understood what he didn't know, and he did everything he could to inform himself on matters of military science, but more importantly, as a leader, he let his talented officers lead. And uh, that, to me, is amazing. And I'm not, not a politician, but as far as General Zeluzhny goes, he has made so much with so little and led from the front and is not only a leader, but an example to his troops. And, uh, you know, John Spencer and I talk about that a lot. There are all these imperceptible factors in what makes a good leader. Bad leaders are all the same, but good leaders, they're all different. Uh, but General Zeluzhny embodies all of the, tick the boxes for a great leader. Lead from the front, delegate authority, delegate tactical authority, uh, give your warfighters everything they need and, uh, you know, give them a plan and let them execute it. But I hope there is a glorious day when I get to shake their hands. And uh, I definitely won't be talking as much as I talk on bullet points. I, I'll, I'll be listening. Fair enough. But, you know, let, let's just hope this happens because I, I really would love to see you shake any and all of their hands. I think that would be absolutely incredible. So anyway, thank you very, very much, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for waiting. Thanks for waiting. Thank you for coming up. And, and speaking of Colonel Spencer, we actually, uh, this actually came up and we were about to close out bullet points. Um, I, I did just want to say really quickly, Chuck, I want to thank, thank you for your service and, and also just to recognize um, what you commemorated 40 years ago. Um, there was a 10-year-old boy that grew up in uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I can recall the day, I can recall uh, the Falcons beat the Jets that day because my favorite player was an English kicker named Nick Luckhurst that helped us, uh, the Falcons, get um, overcome a two-touchdown deficit in the fourth quarter to beat the Jets. I remember that very vividly, and sometime after that, I remember my mother telling me to, to say a prayer because some good Americans died that day defending freedom. And, and I, to this day, I remember that, that impacted me, and I get chucked up to that day. Um, I'm sure that there are some some very good men that you were, you knew that were past that day, and I just want to thank you for your service and thank you for everything that you've done. I thank Colonel Spencer and all of those who have fought to defend our freedom. Um, I, I, I'll, there won't won't be any any amount of, of thanks and gratitude that I can give that um, that there's no words I can say that they reflect that. But I just want to say thank you for what you did, and I'm really glad that you got a chance to. Uh, commemorate that moment and um, you know thank you for everything that you've done and for defending our freedom and and representing what the good Ukrainians are doing to this day so I just wanted to take that moment to to mention that now 
Um, as we Michael, thank, host. thank I'm sorry, you. I'm getting a little emotional because I'm just remembering a, a fond childhood memory uh, <laughs> of, of that Sunday, and at the same time, um, something that struck me and you know kind of imparted something on me from my parents that day. And I just dated myself too. <laughs> but with that said, Shaggy, if you want to say something, and then we can, we can go to Colonel Spencer. Well, I I will just uh, I, I I thank you very much. Um, the Commandant of the Marine Corps spoke at the uh, memorial, and uh, one of the things he said was, "Think think of all the people who didn't get to live the lives that that we've lived, and." make the most out of the opportunity that you were given. And, uh, you know, that, that, that really resonated. And, uh, there, you know, Ukraine is going through, uh, uh, an equally hard time right now. And let's all think about them and let's say some prayers about them as well. And, uh, you know, if you got five bucks, folks, (laughs) we know what to do with it. And, uh, Michael and Nancy, just want to thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on tonight. John, I'm glad you're here. I only uh, came up to I got say... a flu shot today, and, and I'm losing altitude. Oh, man, you're going, <laughs> you're going down. I didn't know the flu still existed. I thought COVID was. But, uh, oh, gosh, I'm going down. Uh, I, I but I'm glad you're here, John. I just wanted to pop up and say hello, and I'm sorry I missed the bullet points. I was actually I'm very excited. I was interviewing uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, the IDF spokesman. I was interviewing him for my podcast, so I was excited about that, but glad I got to catch you before you jump off and just say hello, brother, and I'll be back in Ukraine, actually, in about a about a week or so, you know, or so, uh, continuing research, and I learned, I actually listened and learned from Chuck on my way in and out, so keep up the good work, brother. Uh, John, that's a, uh, that's a tall order. Listen, I, I listen to you. I listen to you, but... Uh, Michael and Nancy, thank you so much, John. I hope you can stick around a little bit if you can, and God bless you, brother. Travel safe, and I'm, I'm sure I'll talk to you before, before you go. But uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I uh, appreciate it so much, and uh, I'll see you Tuesday, if if not before. <laughs>